to episode 9.5 of Movie Mumble, the recap for our third cycle of films. In these recaps, we meet to give things another breath of air and examine these movies with fresh minds and the benefit of hindsight. We'll go over anything we didn't get to in our original discussions, or bring up new things we've only thought about with the passage of time. Uh, for clarification, one cycle of films is where each of us has picked once. So after Joel, Tim, and I have each picked a film, we'll do one of these recap episodes. These will be scheduled between our normal episodes, so we don't cheat you out of a regular one, and we won't make any, you know, podcast shattering announcements that are, <laughs> you know, optional, as it were. This past cycle, we watched The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou. Uh, you left your dog, you're, you're idiots. What was the, I lost the quote yeah. already. Uh, you gotta of, say it with his inflection. You what? left your dog, you idiots. One of, one of Wes Anderson's more eclectic films, <laughs> which is quite a statement. Uh, we watched La Haine. Fuck your cow. Uh, a black and white French neo-noir uh, dealing with the lives of uh, three boys over a period of about 24 hours. And Pollock. A lighthearted romp through the life of Jackson Pollock, <laughs> the famous painter. It is, Fuck which Picasso. Is not lighthearted at all. Yes. Fuck Picasso is our quote for that one. I like that. We should have touchstone quotes touchstone from each quotes. one. Usually yeah. with profanity. Yeah. So, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, Lahey, and Pollock. Yes. Those are. Uh, it's too bad we couldn't find a fuck something quote for Life Aquatic. There's got, there is yeah. one. I will, I will scour my mind uh, looking for it. So anyway, what have you guys been thinking about these things? <laughs> Anything that's come to mind lately? Tim has notes for once. Yeah, well, most of them are for, for Pollock, so if we no. want to go in order, we, well, can, fine. we can wait. <laughs> you can start with I Life just, Aquatic. I threw you a line, and you just you spat on it. At least it's rope, you know, just wash it off. Sticks. What? <laughs> I'm saying I threw him a line. No, I, I got them. Spat on the rope because lines made a rope. No, I got it. But usually when you're throwing a line, it's like in the ocean. So you you just yeah, so he's adding to the drink here. Yeah, so he's just spitting on it. <laughs> okay. I'm licking the worm, but not biting. Oh, good lord. <laughs> that means two things, listeners. Is that meta? <laughs> that means two things. <laughs> <sighs> <sighs> anyway, well, it, uh, if, if yeah, if we're going in order, so like my, I guess more my uh, recent rethinking of uh, Life Aquatic. Um, I, I recently finished writing the the theme for that one, so that was sort of what my my kind of current experience, the the the, the back thinking I've done on that. Um, but, in uh, the podcast? Question mark. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, within like, the podcast. Yes. <laughs> um. But uh, so that that was sort of interesting. I get to kind of delve back into into the music, um, and if you're listening to this, you've probably already listened to the Life Aquatic podcast and heard the theme for that, which um, incorporated the music that they're listening to in the uh, when he's got the helmets and he's telling about how like oh you know we have these antennas so we can pipe in music into our helmets yeah. and, and turns that on and then that um, a different version of that music, which that music is written for like keyboards. And then an orchestral version is used for the, uh, is it Ping Island? Yeah. They, yeah, the rescue on Ping Island. Um, so it was neat to kind of get to do sort of uh, get double use out of that music. Right? Yeah. Once I figured the music out, it's like, oh, okay, I can use this on the keyboard and with the full orchestral sound. So that it was... took us a while to realize it was the same theme. Like, yeah. We, 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 we had thought of those two 
pieces of music is different rather yeah. than just differently arranged. And, and what's funny too is I remember when I was watching the film and that first one pops up, I'm like, this is what I'm using for the theme. <laughs> and then when the Ping Island Rescue comes up, I'm like, oh, I'm going to incorporate this too. Like, so, so it was something about that piece that jumped out at me both times, but both as individual, two individual things seemingly to me. And then, oh, good, it's the same music, so I can just lump it all in together easily. Mm-hmm. So that was that was sort of my my experience. As with... you heard about his worm experience, Tim likes to lump things in, <laughs> right. into other things. <laughs> just sort of the wet plop. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, you said you had yes. some some life aquatic thoughts. Yeah, I um, well, I I was actually talking to a friend of ours earlier today, so. When you're listening to this, Noah, know that you inspired me. Uh, about that you were never really told about what was real and what wasn't. Not in terms of, like, you know, unreliable narrator or what happened or didn't happen. But real or what wasn't in terms of his show. Because there was obviously stuff that he sort of arranged or maybe not quite staged, but, like, you know, his knowledge was so so woefully blatant lies sometimes. But then sometimes really true and accurate and good stuff. And so you were never, they never even addressed the question of how much of his show is real and how much of it is not. Right. Which didn't even occur to me when we were watching the movie that that question went unanswered. I just, I just slipped away and I kind of didn't notice because there was so much more important stuff going on. Gotcha. Yeah. It's really interesting to think about that in terms of when they're, the crew is watching one of his old documentaries and Klaus says that that's how it used to be like. Mm. And it's Steve, like, they're, uh, uh, like iceberg diving what are they, those those called that it's a, it's another Seinfeld reference where he goes the polar bear club mm-hmm. where they go ice diving mm-hmm. so they're doing that in like the middle of this ice flow and suddenly they stop from having fun and Steve goes what, what was that is that a distress bark like it's like so perfectly framed and seems like it would have been staged like we've seen a bunch of different stuff like that Mm -hmm. but Klaus seems to have like this nostalgia for it like that was actually genuine that captured that moment in a certain sense Mm -hmm. so I don't know if that's two layers of like nostalgia just like this is back when we made good movies and we were prosperous and when we set stuff up it was actually interesting and those kinds of things Mm -hmm. huh yeah, I feel like you, I, I can never tell when Bill Murray was being Steve Zissou and when he was just being Bill Murray. <laughs> right. You know, like, 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 yeah, those little quirks. It's like, is that just him, you know, or is that sort of a specific direction of like, yeah, use this inflection to imply this, you know? Mm-hmm. Or is it just, what's the quirkiest way to deliver this line? <laughs> mm-hmm. It's interesting that for such a pretentious director... <laughs> like, like, you're just so unapologetic about it. It's like, true. no, no, we all know he's pretentious. <laughs> like, that's <laughs> well, no, okay. Movies about movie making can be seen as and have been masturbatory and self-serving. What and does kind that of... make a podcast about movies about <laughs> movie making? This is radio about movies. It's, it's fine. It's a completely different thing. <laughs> but what I'm saying, like. Movies Coming about from three movies. guys with a face for radio, right? <laughs> and a voice for silent film. Yes, <laughs> and um. continuity for dreams. Um. <laughs> I don't know about you, man, but I like my dreams. <laughs> Keep them out of this. 
No, but like for such a pretentious director to do a movie about the movie making process, that part of it doesn't feel as off-putting as sometimes films about films feel. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's kind of it's also I mean it's making of a fictional documentary series. Mm -hmm. It's obviously referencing Jacques Cousteau. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't get into the weeds of like this is all Hollywood knows about so this is what Hollywood is continuing to perpetuate and then that's what wins the awards Mm -hmm. and those kinds of things. I just, that was the thought I was just having is that for somebody as pretentious as Wes Anderson as a writer and a maker of films that are written a certain way to deal with the issue of film in a way that did not come off as pretentious was kind I don't of know why, but the first thing I thought of when I thought about parody about the types of films that win awards, my first thought was man getting hit by football from <laughs> The Simpsons. Okay. Which is the whole film is Mole Man standing on a sidewalk and then a football comes out of the sky and hits him in the junk. <laughs> I want to see that film. That's the whole film. I don't remember if it even won in the episode I'm thinking about, but it was an awards thing. Instead, we got Life Aquatic. Yeah. I don't know, like, I feel like if Tarantino made a movie about making movies, right? Like, I. It would be gory as all hell, right? Mm. But like the Coen brothers making like Hail Caesar, I never mm. saw it. It looked gorgeous, and I would have really liked to like. Let's see talk it. about this movie we've never seen. But <laughs> like, we do all the time. But yeah. okay. No, I just like it had a certain air about it. Like this is the golden age of Hollywood. This mm-hmm. is the cool things about that. Like Trumbo mm-hmm. had that certain. That's what like the same kind of gravitas is like. We know the film industry really well, so. We're mm. making this film to speak to that, mm-hmm. and it, it becomes this like separate genre of film. A film for filmmakers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, The Life Aquatic wasn't that. No, yeah, <laughs> no, it, it was certainly wasn't quirky. Film for filmmakers. It was. It was interesting that you know a lot of Wes Anderson films have some amount of something that's not. I'll say not real, but what I mean is like the shots in Grand Budapest where it's a miniature yep. or a model. Clearly a miniature. Well, what have you? Yeah, it's very, very obvious. In Life Aquatic, it, it was all real except for the underwater yeah. stuff, mm-hmm. which was all fake. Right. It was a very distinct, you know, instead of just, oh, the, the broader shot of the hotel or the mountain or what have you is going to be a model and it looks pretty and it sets the tone. And this was a very, very clear distinction between two worlds. Which had this sort of sort of this narrative purpose that certainly surprised me. Not I don't know, maybe surprise is a little too strong, but it wasn't what I was expecting from mm-hmm. a Wes Anderson film. The way I, now that I'm thinking about that, this separation of that, it's almost because it, they were all claymation. I mean, we see the albino um, dolphins are real. Mm-hmm. We see there's a killer whale that's actually real. There's all kinds of dogs and birds and those kinds of things. You left your dog, idiot. <laughs> but the the sea turtles are stop motion. The uh, um, crayon pony fish is a claymation, and also the jaguar shark. Mm-hmm. I'm almost wondering jaguar if jaguar shark, jaguar, jaguars. <laughs> that's our favorite quote of late. Is Bill Hader's forgotten impression of. 
I don't even know who it is. It's who, it's yeah, some, some newscaster. Some newscaster from, from 60, 60 Minutes. minutes. <laughs> it's from a sketch that never even aired on SNL. <laughs> it's a story he tells Seth Meyers on his talk show. <laughs> Google it. <laughs> Google it. <laughs> Stop the podcast now. Go and see that. That's that's funny. You'll get it. Now you'll laugh. Wait, 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 hold on. Now we stop. Now they're watching. Now they've come back. Welcome back. And, uh, okay, welcome back. Jaguars. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, okay, so. No, but l- what I was thinking is that the, the separation of those two worlds is almost the lens through which we view nature from National Geographic or... Um, documentary series is that there's this distance you don't see these animals as dangerous or like like a, a threat and neither does steve until yeah. it eats esteban we don't see them for what they are they're this thin on a screen that's in some other part of the world right it's really cool and isn't nature wild and then yeah it's just as know. distant as the claymation is to reality mm. so it's this this lens through which we're viewing underwater life which is Cool. And, and it's also easy to forget even when you do see animals just in a zoo or in a sanctuary yeah. because they're behind a fence of some kind. Right. And there's a sort of, oh, wait, no, I'm like standing feet from something yeah. that could just destroy me. Even accidentally in some cases, yeah. you know, not just predators, but just that elephant didn't see where I was standing. Mm-hmm. You know, there you go. There goes squishy human. That's all, it's all very real and very present. Mm-hmm. There's a lack of presence of some kind in a lot of documentaries partly just because you know they're on our TV filmed millions of miles away and we're on a couch in a right. house you know but yeah but for, for Steve it, it gets brought home violently and yeah. tragically at the very beginning of the film it's interesting now I'm thinking about aquariums and how every just in the way that Wes would set up a, a set mm-hmm. all aquariums are designed aesthetically right like mm-hmm. this is the thing that the fish would like this is to make it have like it's like a fish tank you give them a little castle you give them all these little quirky little things to make it look cool fish couldn't give a fuck less about that no it's it's every experience of underwater life that we get on dry land is framed mm-hmm. and meticulously constructed, constructed arranged yeah which is very interesting and kind of exactly what Wes Anderson does with real people with mm. zizu too zizu even the parts of his show that might have been constructed right that's what what makes them different then right what we see yeah oh it's got layers like an onion parfait parfait everybody loves parfaits mm. if you haven't seen shrek what's wrong with you or layers of fear or layers of Pretension. Layers of pretension. (laughs) It's being pretentious about being pretentious. Side note, um, I don't know whether this will edit in. We had a moment of silence, but I was also talking to Noah this morning. I greeted him at work. He looked very confused when he saw me, and then he said, It sort of came to realization. I just, I'm, you know, hi, good morning. I, I was sure this was the first time I'd seen you today, but I was also certain we'd been having a conversation today. And I realized it's because as I was getting up this morning, I was listening to your podcast. <laughs> and I just, that was the weirdest moment. <laughs> it's like, we have one I was fan. talking to him yeah. this morning when I was asleep, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I, that's why I took that moment of silence there to begin that, in case you want to cut that out, Joel, I don't know. No, I don't know, meta. that's gold. Hey, I like it. Sure. <laughs> it's just 
so it was a beautiful beautiful moment um you know it's it's interesting how thoroughly we explored the life aquatic our first time around mm-hmm. i keep thinking up topics from that conversation and then going oh wait we we talked about them already gotcha um, i actually i just since since watching it with you guys, I actually put it on again and then listened to the commentary. Mm. And it's Wes and his writing partner in the New York diner coffee place where they wrote it. So you he, My dinner with Andre? Ish, yeah. It's. Oh, no. I, wait. Where they wrote Steve Zizou, you mean? Life Aquatic. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I just, oh, I'm sorry. I no, I thought that. you meant a particular spot. No, no, no. Like, it, it's. And it's them it talking through the of, film. Sort of thing. With the, the clinking of glasses and people ordering, and then this really loud couple talking about like this person who, who whose husband is beating her and she keeps coming back like in the background like oppressively. <laughs> it's really really weird and really like twisted. Um, so side, ho- hope she's okay. Hope she got. I mean, well, yeah. Yeah, but um, I just might well pick a, a public spot. Where the conversation it comes was just clearly. like a, another layer of pretension. Two. Of course, this is where he read, wrote it. Of course, this is how he would want to watch it again and record and yeah. talk about it. Anyway, seeing behind the scenes of the behind the scenes. Right. <laughs> um, I do really like Wes Anderson. I want to get that across. <laughs> as much as I've maligned his pretension in this episode, it's part of why I love him. Anyway, they were talk. I had talked about how they had the cross section of the ship and how they had done the shots that way. Yeah. And I was thinking that it was a reference to old Hollywood, in the way that they constructed a uh, set from the Ladies Man, which is a Jerry Lewis film. What he was actually talking about and what he was referencing with that set, from what he had said in the commentary, was the cross sections of ships that you would get in a National Geographic. Hmm. So yeah. they show or like those eyewitness the books where it's like that. here's the ship, here's the galley, here's how it would be presented. So I thought that was interesting. I was also you giving. also just brought me a wonderful image of a young Wes Anderson and or young Steve Zizou with their National Geographic magazine turning it sideways and the pages unfold. Yeah. And, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and they look at the cover and it says Geo. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> when you Great started that, image. when you started that, I was thinking like, oh, like little kid in wonder, and then you turned it. It was great. <laughs> I mean, you know, lots of. Uh, I I really I guess that works both ways, really, because it's just a matter of perspective. Yeah. At first, they'll look at it and go, you know, a little kid in wonder. And then as they get old, they'll look at it and go, oh, oh <laughs> it's Nat Geo, and it's <laughs> yeah. Look at that. Look at the bow on that thing. <laughs> <laughs> we know they have a history of putting uh, bare-breasted women <laughs> from around the oh world. Gosh, that whole... Oh, man. Wheel of boobs. What? <laughs> what was that? I don't know. Uh, but that, that was, of the whole commentary, that's the one thing I really lifted out you. of it. Mm-hmm. it. It was really distracting listening to the clinking glasses and stuff and the other first people's personal lives apparently that was yeah it was very strange like edit that why aren't you like as somebody meticulous as wes is it's like can i listen to that back i don't know anyway we can we can put zizu to bed if that if we can move on to something that people have notes about (laughs) (laughs) i'm fine i no, i mean not 
Not to shut you down, but I no, just... No, we talked about you're it. Right, like, every time I thought of something just now... Ooh, I... No, like, we talked about that. Yes. Just, cause we, we did. We talked really well. That, yeah. one. that one went very smoothly. Mm-hmm. It was a nice return to form. <laughs> so, do you want to move on to La Haine? Yeah, huh? cool. Not, yeah. 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 Um, I have... I wrote a paper on this, and then I talked about it with anyone I, who would listen for five minutes, and then I watched it with you guys, and then I talked about it with you guys. Mm-hmm. So I don't really actually have much to add to my own <laughs> film. Um, do you? <laughs> when you, um, do you? One of the uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up was the the day after we did the podcast. Hmm. I pretty much I, I I talked to my coworkers about it, and as as best as I could, and it was it kind of reminded me of the time that I was trying to tell the story of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Yeah. It was kind of like stumbling through and backtracking. I basically explained the whole plot of this film like that to them. Where I was like, go in there when they're doing this. Oh, wait, that's right. One of them has a gun because he found a gun because a cop. Oh, that's right. The cop lost his gun. And, and then, then you do the. And, and like, then they go to Paris. And they find the guy in the bathroom who yeah. gives them a story about the train in Siberia. That's one of my favorite scenes in <laughs> cinema. Nothing. He froze to death. Oh, man. I'm, so- <laughs> I'm lamenting the fact that we don't have you telling that story. <laughs> it reminded me of like, those, those scenes from uh, Ant Man. Where the guy yeah. said, like, oh, my cousin so-and-so was talking about this. You know, and it's like, it was that type of thing where it was like, okay, let me rattle off this whole thing. And, um, and like, kind of as I was telling this story, I, w- I kind of stepped out of myself. I was like, wow, like, you were really taken by this. And, like, how how well the, the story was done and, like, the narrative and how well cons- how concise everything was. And I almost wonder, like, like, even though it was in French but there were subtitles, like, I almost feel like it would have functioned as a silent film you know like without yeah. you know just kind of like like I mean maybe still have the speech so that you can hear the inflection of what they're ah, saying but like you no almost subtitles. don't need the words yeah, yeah. Um, it was actually kind of like uh, alright I I know our next cycle is decided but then after that I have a film we're watching then in that <laughs> nice. case um, uh, I'm sorry Tim I didn't no, no, derail okay. you um, it remind, I was watching a What's the <laughs> Sorry, that was Tim proceeded to the hit table. the table the mics are sitting on. <laughs> uh, if you heard something like Zena. That's what it was. <laughs> that was him. Um I started watching what was the 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 Mel Gibson Apocalyptico or whatever Apocalypto. it is? Yeah. Apocalypto. Yeah. I've actually when that came out everyone sort of went Meh. but mm-hmm. like ever since then all I've heard is a few people here and there and they all love it. Mhm. Did you Um I mean I don't know if I go so far to say I loved it, but I, I really liked it. Like, okay. it was good. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, I started watching it, and I was like, I was like, oh, okay. Like, I get it. Like, there's, you know, they're speaking this ancient language. But, yeah, like, I don't, you don't need to have subtitles or whatever, because you can kind of get... And it took me, like, ten minutes to realize, oh, I hadn't turned the subtitles on. Really? Which I guess was an interesting feature, because you know that was sort of the thing is like for those 10 minutes like I understood all of what was happening right mm-hmm. without any subtitles and mm-hmm. so it was almost like he, I don't know if he intentionally did that where it's like okay the, the, there are these words and we're going to have subtitles for people to be able to watch it we don't want to alienate people we want them mm-hmm. to know what you're saying um, also I remember hearing that was sort of a way in like old Hollywood whenever people spoke like you know uh, 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 like French or German, they would have subtitles, but if people were speaking Spanish, they would have no subtitles because 
Spanish was like this barbaric language. It's like, oh, they're speaking gibberish. We don't know what they're saying. But whenever someone was speaking, you know, one of the higher languages, it was like, oh, yes, this person who's speaking in French, this is what they're saying. And that was sort of... Poor poor Spain. Not part of (laughs) Europe anymore. (laughs) But that was apparently a thing they would do. And I mean, I think in those cases, when when it was Spanish, it was people from Mexico. And it was Mm. kind of meant to be this sort of like, you know, even back then, like, oh, there's these bad hombres down there we don't know what they're saying they're speaking some weird language and that was sort of like one of those i don't know if it'd be considered like a a, probably more so than a microaggression probably an actual aggression being like yeah we're not going to tell people what your what the words of your language actually mean you know they're gonna have to sit there and go oh a major social pillar treats this entire people as secondary (laughs) right yeah yeah so that that's kind of like what i was almost wondering with this is that what they're trying to do like show these people as like ancient and barbaric or but then on the other end it was kind of the storytelling and the acting was so elevated you almost didn't need the words um but then i turned the subtitles on i was like oh okay this is what they're saying but um yeah i almost wished i hadn't and had just followed along with what the action was because i mean a lot of it was very was very clear as far as like what what was happening what they were doing um and there were, you know, there were details that you picked up once you had the words. But anyway, um, so I wonder if this would have that sort of quality where it's like, okay, you're kind of following these guys along and, okay, this is just banter. Okay, now that, oh, he has a gun. Oh, so, th- I mean, there are probably mm-hmm. details you would miss, like the fact that that gun was a gun lost by a cop earlier, mm-hmm. right. you know, at the riots and stuff You'd like miss that. You'd that the guy in the hospital was his friend. And, right, yeah. And their family takes, take, tries to take revenge. Yeah. Um, but, but, yeah, it was kind of interesting, like, how much... Like when I sort of remembered back to it, and I guess this is, yeah, like maybe it's the way your brain processes things differently from hearing them being spoken versus reading them. Like I don't remember any of the dialogue that the, mm. that was said because I read it, but I remember the concepts of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, maybe how my brain is storing that information. It was easier to see the, the film as a whole and the progression of things. And, well, maybe not easier because I was the way I was fragmentingly like <laughs> spitting the, the information out, but anyway it was just interesting like as i was doing it i was like wow like this this film really captivated you like you're really engaged Mm -hmm. and you want to tell people about this you know and you know and sort of yeah yeah exactly you know like i'm glad like you know kind of spread the the message to people you know and i remember too like as i was um as i was uh i want to say this in a very neutral sort of way um the place where i work it's kind of there are different people are on different sides of the political spectrum let's just say it that way and there are some people that i know are on the far other end from where some of the other people are and as i was telling this story i was telling it to the people who who tend to lean closer on the political spectrum um to you. closer to me mm-hmm. but some of the people on the other end were within earshot and I found myself almost like projecting over to them as I was saying certain concepts about the film you know even though that person's back was to me trying to be like I hope this person over here is what I'm saying right now you get this was it? a critical point of the film <laughs> and it was terrible that people were, rea- were acting this way <laughs> but um, so yeah Tim ain't no hollaback, bro. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait. I guess he is. Uh, oh, man. I'm really delighted that that gripped you the way it did, though, mm, Tim. Yeah. Because it really, really gripped me for weeks afterwards. And it just viscerally deep down. And I'm, I, 
Oh, I'm so glad <laughs> yeah. for you too, because it's not something you can easily put into words or pin down. Yeah. Just the sort of shift you feel mm-hmm. in a film like that. Of any 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 kind of film that yeah. grips you in that way. You know? Yeah. So, I think mm-hmm. one of the things too, and I, I think this is, I don't know if I, if we've talked about this in movie mumble, but I've talked about certain things with this with other people. Like when there's a film or something that has this important message, and I feel like a lot of times you always feel like, well, the people who are going to see this film, who are going to seek it out, are probably the ones who already, you know, it's a preaching to the choir kind of right. thing. Like I already understand what that message is. I already feel that way. And any of the people who probably should see something like this and should have a sense of like, oh, wow, I never thought of it that way. Like, they're not going to seek this film out. They're not going to bother to watch it. Or if they do, you know, they'll either probably easily kind of vilify all the people who in our minds are set up to be the heroes or or just kind of miss a lot of the points altogether. Um, But one of the things I almost wonder with this film is if, if because I feel like a lot of the characters, it's kind of. You're not exactly sure who exactly the hero is, or who right. you know, and who the villain. You know, it shifts so yeah, you know, like, like with with like Vins especially, where it's like mm. it, it, you kind of if you had to <laughs> if you had to make a snap judgment about a person, you know, you'd almost assume like he's the one. Oh God, he's just gonna murder a bunch of people because he's he's the one with the gun and he's the one who's angry and he's a and and that's not the path that this takes, you know. Mm. And, and and you go much like the friends. Their day and their friendship. It was back and forth, lots of conversations, lots of events, lots of whatever's in which sometimes they're friends and sometimes they're arguing. And it goes back and forth. Just around and around in this circle all day, throughout the whole film. Mm-hmm. Much much like friendships, you know, we'll be talking to someone and everything's great, and then the next time we talk to them about something, we disagree. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, next time we see them, it's just, oh yeah, how you been? Hey, great, let's get drinks. You know, it, yeah. it goes all over the place. And as a yeah. result, our <clears throat> as the audience, our feeling of who we're rooting for tends to swing all over the place. Too. Yeah, I and feel like even even the person who would see <clears throat> Vince as like the righteous justice, anger, revenge figure throughout the whole film, if none of the other subtleties got through to him, the ending where he gives that up and dies, like that's that is a blunt enough tool to to establish those uh, lines, right? Like, mm-hmm. even if you've decided that that's going to be your hero character, even though it's ambiguous and there's subtlety in those things, I think the ending of the, the, the film is crafted in such a way that even if that's all you latch onto, you are still devastated by the end. Mm-hmm. And by the end, the lines of authority and righteous justice and the power of weaponry are, are bl- like they're well defined and it's I mean it's a very effective ending there mm-hmm. I, I like you like again it's not necessarily the case that the people who would need to see those things and have them so blatantly outlined would see this because it's a reading movie and it's French and it's in black and white mm-hmm. but I would hope that they would, because it's good. It's a great movie. Like, yeah. And <laughs> I love something I really love about it, and it's not easy for a film to do. And this film takes most of its one time to do it. But it just tells a story by just letting us watch. There's almost nothing about this that's set up. You know, there's no exposition. Right. There's no 
camera shifts onto this thing to show the audience what's happening, you know, right. or what, there's none of that. There's just, we just watch these three kids go about their life. And as it happens, we see what happens, and then at the end we have a story. That's it, you know, it's not, there's no explanation, there's no traditional, here, let me tell you a story. There's just, hey, watch these kids for a while, live with them. And then it happens to be a story. But it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it's almost not constructed at all. And I mean, the whole thing is constructed, of course, but it, it doesn't feel like it. Right. And that's very hard to hold attention for and to keep cohesive communication throughout. But it does it so well here. We're just watching, we're just watching these guys go about their lives. Just sort of staring at the screen, slack jawed. You know, that late night TV look on your face of, uh, uh, uh. And then at the end, you know, that last gunshot. And the film ends, screen is black. And you sort of reawaken. Oh, oh, what happened? Oh, and you, it all falls into place. Of, well, I, did, well, I just watch. Everything you watch just comes together. Mm. Sandwiched into one package and pushed into your face. And you sort of, you realize the whole... Cyclical. The whole, yeah, the whole cyclical sequence. The whole, just the whole, this is just these just what life is like is a story and it can tell us so much I still like if I was going to do a film course I would want to watch this and Friday mm. in the same breath almost the same day as a commentary on this kind of narrative in this kind of setting mm -hmm. American versus French yeah, comedy the same time versus period, right? dramatic. Yeah. yeah, coming out in relative the same. It was like the early nineties, right? Yeah. Wasn't, didn't we find that both of them were in the early nineties? Uh, let me look up Fahane real quick here. Watch all of them both. Fahane uh, was. If I could spell, that would be wonderful. Fahane was nineteen ninety five. And the other one, Friday, you said. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 1995. Okay. The Ice Cube. Yeah. Yeah. Friday. Because there are a lot of Fridays on here. <laughs> <laughs> like, Wait, whoa. Next Friday. Friday after next. Friday the 13th. Friday Night Lights. Freaky <laughs> Friday. Other Friday the 13th. Which is not the same one. Friday, Other Friday, Friday Night gotta Lights. Gotta get down on Friday. Which there are two Five of. Nights at Freddy's. Next Friday. Friday Night. Didn't, yeah. So. Anyway. <laughs> no, I just, I just really... I don't know which who said that about Friday last time, but it was just like that is stuck in my head. It's like these two movies should be watched together because you you could watch Lehane and feel devastated, and then watch Friday to feel good about yourself. But, also but you're these, also in these interesting sort of you know it's about where where the countries were at the time. Yeah. You know where our country's cinema looks is certainly a, a picture a glimpse into what its people were thinking about yeah, or talking about sure. or concerned about. And not always, not every film, obviously. Right. You know, I mean, people aren't going to go watch The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou and presume that Americans of the time were endlessly concerned with the the, the uh, integrity of their documentary filmmaking, you know. Um, oh, the they should have been. <laughs> right, oh, the Jaguars, right. But, the Jaguars. But, you know, some films can do that. And so we have this, this 90s, you know, Friday, this comedic sort of lighthearted thing. Things were good, the economy was good, the... You know, the the social issues of the 80s had been, I guess, swept aside, I'll say. You know, the, the HIV epidemic and all the gay issues and whatnot. It was mm -hmm. sort of cl closed up by the office space 
corporate, you know, economy doing well 90s, right? And, mm-hmm. and in France, there was a lot of social, I won't say a lot, I guess, I don't know. You know I haven't thoroughly researched 90s France, but just from La Haine, we get a bigger focus on the social issues that were going on at the time, especially the community issues and the, the uh, you know, issues of police and protest and whatnot. That was more in the foreground in France than things were in the U.S. in the 90s. I think the other thing about Friday is that it's definitely a... It was a new kind of comedy, as in written, directed, primarily acted by all black actors. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a point of view in a... It's it's essentially a movie in which nothing happens, <laughs> right? Like, there's a big confrontation and there's a bad guy. It's a show about nothing. Yeah, no, <laughs> but that's the thing. Like, that, as a comedy, was a big step for that kind of writing, that setting, and to, to portray it from a, a, this is just normal life. This is not an overly violent, drug-infested, violence-infested, like, no. it, it, this was a snapshot of, what a I think regular it's, day it's Comp- Compton, and it was, it, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's just a really interesting... Sound like an idiot. Just a really interesting point of view for that film, for that time, mm-hmm. and I think it has just as much social commentary as a a new step in that genre mm-hmm. as La Haine is for that social commentary mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. They're both good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, oh, oh, did you oh. do any uh, 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 Hindu research? So yeah, I'll, I'll dip into that a little bit. I mean, a lot of the the stuff I kept finding was he's dipping. some of the <laughs> so, yeah, some of the same information. I think we may have mentioned this last time, but I guess sort of one concept with with Brahma being the world creator, Vishnu being the world maintainer, and Shiva the world destroyer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what's kind of interesting with that is is there's, and we've already kind of talked about this on the, on the surfacey level that that you kind of almost have this, if you had to pick which was which at the beginning, uh, you know, it'd probably be, um, what's his name? The, the one who opens his Saeed. eyes at the very beginning. Saeed. Yeah, Saeed. So he would be, I, I think, the, the Brahma, because that's, the, I think creator. we talked about that. Yeah, the idea of he opens his eyes, the universe is created, he closes his eyes, the universe is destroyed. And he, he does a lot of the leading them around to places. He's the one who takes them into Paris for his right. debt to collect, mm-hmm. you know? He'd, yeah, mm-hmm, certainly. And then with with Vins, I feel like through the whole film, you think he is the destroyer, you know, because he's the one with the gun. He's the one he's who's going to pushing for change, pushing for drama, pushing yeah. for action, pushing for for kill. And Hubert is the seems to be the maintainer because right. he's holding Vince back. Right. He's he's and keeping mediating. everything calm. Yeah, mediating. Like okay. Yeah. But then there are also sometimes where I think we've said Said seems to be the mediator between those mm-hmm, two right. when those mm-hmm. two are kind of at, at, at odds so um so i almost wonder like it, you know if, if there's any correlation at all or if it's like a loose correlation like let's take these three aspects and kind of like play around with them and i mean and i mean it it couldn't necessarily it doesn't have to necessarily have to be like sort of a relation to the hindu mythology because you could kind of say like whatever you have you know left right and middle you know both both extremes and then sort of a balance between the two right. and just kind of how that plays between the three characters yeah the roles transition um, yeah yeah um 
and uh, and maybe that you know if that was something they were thinking, Even maybe that was something. Vince is sometimes the mediator, when when Saeed is bugging Hubert about something, you know, immaturely, sort of childishly. Mm-hmm. Vince will step in and do the big brother thing, and right, sort of yeah. give him the okay, well, you know, the give him what he wants without what he wants, giving him what he wants, mm-hmm. sort of parenting technique almost. Yeah, to, to get Hubert some peace and to get Saeed happy, you know. Yeah. Um. So so yeah. So that's sort of the you know the. I didn't sort of really dig in and do a whole dissertation about like, well, this element could have been this and this could have been this. So that, yeah, sorry, sorry listeners. There's not much new information <laughs> from that initial thing that I thought of, but you know, then again, you know, if you're, if you watch the film, maybe you have ideas of, of your own as far as like, Oh, well, having said that, I noticed that this scene, blah, 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 whatever, you know? And, um, and, and I guess that's part of it too, is like, you know, the director doesn't necessarily have to say, oh, I'm going to do a direct adaptation of this story, you know, using regular people in, in Paris, you know. But maybe there's a degree of inspiration of, oh, hey, there's this idea of these three figureheads and they represent these three things. So, you know, if it's something that that's worked well for centuries in that mythology, maybe this is a concept we can vaguely bring into our characters to make sure that, you know, we're kind of, that there's a balance between them throughout each scene, you know? Like, in each scene, we want one to be on one end, one to be on the other, one to be the mediator, you know? Maybe that was just sort of the overall, you know, um, as, a, as, as a device just to make sure that, oh, are we spending too much time on this one character and not enough on this, these other two, or too much on these two and not enough on this one, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. Oh, that's what I was thinking ah. that a, a while back, um, that, you know, in... In this day and age of, of endless reboots and and you know, and it almost seems and like and yeah, remakes and, yeah remakes. Yeah. It almost seems like you know, oh, I kind of wish someone would pick this up and do a remake of this. You know, I mm. feel like this, you know, especially An like updated line. Yeah, you know, like in you know in our times, especially like it's you know that I think that's one of the things that shocked me the most finding out this this was written and made in 1995. You know, like. I thought yeah. it was made last year. Yeah, just, like, just, <laughs> just I, the way history goes sometimes, yeah. a lot of the issues that the film concerns itself with that France was facing at the time yeah. are issues that we are now facing here in the United States. Yeah. So, I mean, so. I think it would be really... And it would be funny, too, because I, I would love to see the reaction if they did a remake of this and, you know, placed it in, in America and kind of released it, you know, like how many people would would sort of assume that this is oh you know they're just, you know the, you know this whole new thing that's happening now with racism it's just like no this is not new like this this concept this story is actually you know decades old by now you know <laughs> you know or, you know and, and, and not even racism but, but you know but this this film the film that this came from mm-hmm. where you're assuming someone yeah. just started getting angry about this a year or two ago and said i'm going to make a film like no this is from 95 yeah. that people were feeling this way about also these issues, a great you know? great you know educator about just another it much much the same way that it reminds us that the animals we see in our documentaries are real living creatures mm-hmm. the other countries and other people across the world are too yeah because this right. comes this isn't american as much as it feels like it sometimes right yeah it is French. Yeah. And it's the same issues that we are only getting concerned about, you know, in the, the broader media recently. Mm-hmm. They were worrying about this 1995, you know? Like, oh, yeah. Right. Meanwhile, you know, during our 90s economic, you know, corporate office awesomeness, yeah. um, meanwhile, France was thinking about these issues. Right. But that was France. This is us. So in the meantime, we don't think about them. And then, you know, a decade plus later, they come around again to, uh, they become relevant to us mm-hmm. and it's all this oh 
wow, it's so new. Like, no. Like, wh- what else is going on right now everywhere else in the world? Who knows? Yeah. Issues right. that we faced before or issues that we will face soon but haven't yet. Right. Who knows? if France is going through a post-classicist lie the way that the 90s and 2000s were a post-racism lie in America. It'd be interesting to see where it is now in terms of these issues. Right. Because if, we, if we're saying that in 95 there, the idea between classes is the same as now with race it'll be interesting to see where they've progressed to if at all Mm -hmm. and what we can look forward to but americanized or those kinds of things because what you're talking about assuming we'll even follow the trends of right say france yeah in any other scenario in life you know maybe we'll follow you know britain's class issues trend or germany's or spain's or argentina's or who knows (laughs) to repeat history should we move on to Pollock yeah Pollock it up (laughs) splat fuck Picasso now we're splatting (laughs) at least it's Joel this time yeah so watch after watching Pollock and leading up to Pollock I had started watching a documentary about uh, Francis Bacon who's a grotesque no France is a country we just (laughs) talked about this (laughs) Um, kind of grotesque. I'm sorry, and I'm also very not sorry. Uh, okay, please, I'm sorry. No, just <laughs> Mr. Bacon. <laughs> not quite surrealist. Not. It's very grotesque. It's very visceral, and it was another one of those examples that reminded me of the art has to come from a tortured place. Discussion. And I had to yeah. stop watching halfway through. It's like I'm not tortured like these people and I'm not going to be as cool or creative as they were and it, it's that complete but I want to remind you of what I reminded of you last, you of last time that the those people are the ones who get stories made about them right. because they make for an interesting story but they're not necessarily the, all the only popular artists out there no that's for sure but so. everybody knows pop you just won't get a movie made about you but you'll be popular <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I mentioned this the first time around but I can bring it up now we have this film of Pollock painting which we saw in the movie being recorded yeah mm-hmm. and it's some of the only film we have of him and certainly odd to have such well you know well documented footage of one of these famous painters at work right you know we didn't in quotes right because right we, it was in, in the film it was portrayed as being entirely pointless as the, being the camera guy bossing him around right. and him pretending directing him yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and I, I have to wonder how much of that was you know I, I don't want to say real how much of that was true how much of that was how much how, how much of that was just you just go to work and I'm going to film you and then hey can you make some small adjustments so you stay in the frame please you know and then how much of that was what we saw in the film this very very directly constructed kind of kind of soulless going through the motions of sorts didn't Pollock journal I feel like that's probably where they lifted those details out of would have been yeah that, I, I don't, I don't know. know Tim do you know what because um, when we talked about it I got the impression that, that that was exactly how it went down was that the the life editor the guy who was filming was that disruptive to the process yeah and I mean I I feel like that that was 
maybe I'm misremembering this, but I thought that whole concept was also brought up in the, you know, my kid could paint that. And I don't know if that was sort of something that they knew about from other sources or from the Pollock documentary, like if they had watched that as, as part of research of making that film, you know, right. like, um, it but. just, it bothered me because that's that it like, what, what the, what the hell this guy, you know, and, and from life, which holds a long reputation as a very credible magazine. Mm-hmm. And even in the interview they do with him, the reporter and the photographer is shown as very much, very professional much more intelligent questioning than all the other interviews we see in that film, mm-hmm. you know? But then the video guy just ruined everything, you know? It was, it was like, like, like saying, oh, I want to shoot a day in your life, but I'm going to tell you everything to do. It's like, then that's not a day in your life anymore. That's just a thing this filmmaker made, you know? And that really annoyed me, you know, you know in, a, in a way that it should. Certainly, it was definitely the age, just, what the hell, man? Like, there's mm-hmm. no point. What an ass! Mm. But it, that, that's why I was thinking about that. Yeah. Going well, on, you know, how much of that was... And even so, you know, how much of that was him not caring about whether what he shot was genuine or just him just trying to get Pollock to stay in his damn camera and then Pollock being infuriated with that mm-hmm. and feeling compromised. You know, like, how, how much integrity was there in the filmmaking? Like we, I mean, we don't... Either way, we won't really know because even if we were to say read Pollock's journals, you know, we. If I'm saying, "Oh, hey, I need you to paint," and then you just suddenly walk into another room, that's wait, dude, what the hell? You know, I need to pick the camera up. You need to come over here. Like, right. please, please yeah. stay here for God's sakes. But if it's no, 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 don't do that. Put more paint over here. You know, those are two very different things. Right. You know, one is, can you please let me get you on this camera, and one is, I'm telling you what to do, and it's not your work anymore. And in the film, it was very much the second one. I just, I was just wondering, you know, how much of that was public feeling constrained by the changes he had to make mm-hmm. to, to be recorded, or how much of that was just this ass with a camera mm-hmm. completely compromising what he was doing. I mean, one of the things I know from the the actual documentary, um, like that is the footage of Pollock, like mm-hmm. that part where he talks about um, wants to film him painting on a mirror from underneath yeah so the fact that the camera i mean the glass had to be high enough like that was actually a thing in that i remember watching Mm -hmm. that scene you know so to have the camera guy underneath this glass and then pollock has to be on like a ladder or whatever to be up on top so that's certainly not completely unnatural of course you know and that the question is you know how much of it was that sort of that type of compromise Mm -hmm. either innocent or not and then how much of it was just you know just not not necessarily conducive to the process because yeah. you know life certainly didn't have the budget to build a false floor right. somewhere yeah. in a barn you know mm-hmm. and then let him just paint and put a bunch of cameras under it yeah so if you wanted to do that at all it was gonna have to be yeah it was gonna have to yeah. be you know not so genuine or i mean you know back up enough so that you get the whole canvas in the shot and just let him do right. his thing and right. shut the hell up you know like like that, that, I guess that's sort of part of it is you find a way to do this with no direction, or you're going to have more of an influence on it than you know than should be had at all, you know. And but that's um, what I mean about the time period. About if we're in a barn, you know, I only have such I can only get such a wide angle lens. I think he was on this outside, thing. wasn't he? Wasn't Sometimes he yeah. had to do natural lighting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How? What year was this? Do we? Oh, I forgot. 
Let's was it sixties? I think. Yeah. I think the other thing that might have been difficult from a the cameraman standpoint is that nobody had ever painted in this way before. Yeah. So if he was going to record, to film this, you know? if he's going to record stuff, he's like that's not how painters look when I filmed them in the past. Mm-hmm. You should look more like a painter, right. which is not like that's not forgiving the the influence of the cameraman on the the artistic integrity of the well, piece. Well, I was going to even say just if I want to capture the painter and the painting, I need to be in two places at once. Yeah. And that's certainly a struggle. I mean, I think part of it too is like, I mean, you definitely get the sense through most of the film that he's incredibly insecure. Like even when he's bragging to his family about all the reviews and everything, like I feel like, you know, sec- people who are secure and confident don't, don't brag. Yeah. You know, and and that's sort of what, what people will sometimes do to feign security and confidence is to remind everybody how confident they are. Right. Um, you know, and, and not that he was, you know, doing, I think he was finally, he had something to be proud of. And that, you know, that's one of the most tragic scenes, I think, of that whole film is, you know, not, not the car crash, but like him just trying to get his family to appreciate what he's doing, that he's... You know that he's worked so much of his life for and his family have sort of gone off done their own thing had their families you know had had success in their own way and he finally has something that he'd be like hey guys like i did this thing and they're just like you know is that as important as your family you know and and then them also not seeing that you know to him like that's his baby you know right and that you know to him the work that he's doing and, and granted what he's bragging about is not the work itself but what people are saying about it so it is slightly removed from that right. but like to him like that's what he has instead of children you know so for for the family to just kind of be like whatever there are kids here and that's what's important you know um so you i mean i think trying to lock into that too because he wants to have kids because that's what people do and then mm-hmm. maybe they'll love me now maybe right. that's the thing that yeah. would make me equal to my brother right in my mom's eyes yeah that's a, a moment that's really well captured in uh, Whiplash when they're having dinner with the I've never uh, seen Whiplash. oh you've never seen Whiplash no as a drummer you really love jazz it drumming. it's really good <laughs> is that a lesser form of drumming I, I didn't say lesser it's just not it's not my aesthetic okay it's it, it has a great scene where he is having dinner with his folks and they're talking about oh you little little Skiffle group, your little mm-hmm. stupid little band. Yeah. No, it's like this is like the pro version of this. This is the highest level. This is March Madness right. MVP, mm-hmm. and they don't fucking get it. Yeah, it's the same frustration. Like, why can't you yeah. be excited about this thing mm-hmm. and find the value in it? Yeah. As a frustrated artist like me, you would like Whiplash. That's that's yeah. no, and, and I'm not opposed <laughs> to seeing it. No. I've just never actively sought it out. You. you know. Um, However, when I saw the the preview for the movie Adventure of Power, which is about an air drumming competition, <laughs> and Tom Sawyer was one of the songs they had to air drum to, I saw that film as soon as I could. <laughs> I think you watched the trailer to that, right? Yep. That, yeah. Um, but uh, sorry, I yeah. derailed no, this. That's, that's no, no. Um. So yes, yeah, so I think yeah, like the, oh, so getting back to the, like the, the insecurity part of it, I think that maybe it may have been exaggerated in the film to maybe show us what he was feeling 
Mm-hmm. Like maybe there were only very few directions, maybe even no directions, but the fact that he was watching, maybe, you know, him having like his insecurity right. kind of making it paralyzing or or knowing that like, I oh, should I do our, this? You know, you know, the question is, so we've got the camera set up and it's looking at a canvas and he's walking around and he's painting on it. Mm-hmm. But the camera can't see the whole canvas. Is that because it just it can't? It's just how this works with the cameras we have at the time and mm-hmm. the way the things and the lighting and everything? Or is it because the video guy chose to, for some reason, not put the entire canvas in? Mm-hmm. So then, you know, when Pollock spends half his time on the part of the canvas that's not in frame, and the video guy yells at him, is that because, you know, because that's just, there's no choice but to only film a chunk of the canvas and can you work with me here? Or is it because video guy's an ass? <laughs> and rega- either way, mm-hmm. regardless, we know it frustrated Pollock, mm-hmm. certainly. And I'm not saying it's invalid. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying I, I wondered what we we got no inkling of the other side of that. You know, yeah. The whole cameraman person in the film existed just to be an antagonistic presence, which is interesting because so many of the other people who come in are explored so much more deeply. Mm. You know, from uh, Guggenheim and that one critic guy, they they're they're given time to explain their reasoning time to talk to Pollock or to his wife and times when they're with him and times when they're against him and you know and and like other people only show up briefly you know reporters from life they're just in the one scene but the camera guy was around for a good number of scenes and he never got that kind of exploration or explanation that people like Guggenheim and that one critic did Mm -hmm. he was just there to be a problem and I just that sort of struck me as out of step with the rest of out of step's too harsh a phrase. It's like this is the movie part of the movie. Right? This is something <laughs> right. that you would yeah. you would take actual stuff and this is something that we can infuse some drama into. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they did. For all right. I know, no, that, I, you yeah. know yeah. yeah. Well Ian, how 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 many instances were there of him filming it? Like had this built up gradually throughout a week or a month right. or just right. that day. Yeah, we don't even yeah. know how long that was <clears throat> right. in the film. Yeah. Doesn't you know? Doesn't give us a calendar yeah. to watch. And that's the thing is, I think it, you know, it was like we said, it's it's a, a, a dramatic, dramatic biography. summary. You know? you know, so it's it's saying, yeah. okay, here's this thing stretched out. We're going to show you the climax of it. We're going to show you the point of this is he he is being directed to whatever degree mm-hmm. it is. It he's insecure. It's frustrating him. It's it's you know, yeah, pushing him to the point of tipping mm-hmm. over the Thanksgiving table and but he can't. Um, he lets out what he feels onto the canvas. He doesn't direct. <clears throat> It just comes out. Yeah. Right. So when he has to has to be limited or changed in any way, shape, or form, in any amount for yeah. any reason, doesn't go well. Well, and that's part of. It. I remember, what was I? I don't know if I read it somewhere or if it was in the, the other documentary, but but sort of what, and I forget exactly how it was put, but basically kind of saying that the way he painted it was about it was about the process. It wasn't like okay, if you're going to paint this landscape and you have this picture that you're reproducing on a canvas yes to some degree it matters what things come first in the layer but it's like well today i'm going to work on the barn well today i'm going to work on the haystack you know like those pieces kind of are all these separate things that can come together again not in any which way but there there are some so you know say for example if someone was going to direct someone painting a still life like oh work on the barn a little bit okay well i'm going to paint the barn the way i want to now paint the haystack okay we're going to move the camera Whereas him him doing that, 
is you know the the, the way he goes about doing it mm. is is part of the process you know otherwise it it's, is the it's anyone else the finished just result throwing, is know. almost just incidental right you know it's yeah. not about what comes later so so it's about yeah. like if you're directing some other painter and they'll be like no use some red over there you know, like the way, right. the, you know, other painters pick their colors and the, the sh- whatever shapes they're using. Like for him, it's it's the yeah. motions and where he's moving yeah. that is a part of it. You can't right. say, no, spend a little more time on this area. Like, well, no, that area is done. Right. Like I've already done what belongs there. Now it's time to spread that idea here. It's not compartmentalizable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. That, though he can't break it into mm-hmm. parts because there's no object. There's yeah. no subject. There's yeah. the motion of... That's interesting. Yeah. That's it's almost kind of like, I mean, like, think about, and I, I, actually, I think that was one of my notes, was kind of comparing it to to jazz, to improvisation. You know, if you're recording someone improvising, but you're saying, oh, wait, no, no let's go back four measures, uh, redo what you did yeah, in that bar, thing, that and again. okay, now, yeah. now we're going to skip ahead yeah. to, to the bar seven, right. play the little lick you did there again. Well, now then you're not improvising right. anymore. You're not in this flow. You, know, you can tell a skateboarder, go back and do that trick again. Because that was really cool, and I yeah. want a better shot of it. Yeah, do it again, but go, start from when you're in the air. He can go do the tricks, <laughs> but you can't. Yeah, but you can't tell him. You know. Yeah, you can't tell him to start from the air. Right. Yeah. That's the difference. So between. yeah, there's this whole there's this whole whole flow. There's this whole like organic out spinning of what's happening. That if you just kind of say yeah, rewind. No, go here. No, skip to this. Right. No, do that. You know. But that's the thing. Like thinking about it that way of the 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 process of painting is almost performance. Makes yeah. me mourn the loss of getting to see it, right? To be able to capture it right. mm-hmm. with adequate film would have been spectacular. If you mm-hmm. could have framed it the right way, if you could have backed up mm-hmm. and let it happen, mm-hmm. that that becomes where the art happens, and that's like that makes me wish we had more of that. Like not in a manipulative way, mm-hmm. but just if, if they had. The tech and the, the the patience and the scale to be able to capture it in full mm-hmm. that would you'd watch that for hours that right. that like I said that would be where the art would happen that yeah. oh. well and I think that's the thing too like there like plenty of artists I think are I don't want to say cashing in because I'm not making money but but you know like <laughs> when you go to YouTube and stuff like like space painting for example right. or these people who will you know, paint this entire canvas and you're like, what the hell is that? And they turn it upside down right. and it's like someone's face, you know? Right. Like part of the, the art is that process. And uh, whereas if you were to just buy that painting, it's like probably the best part of the painting is telling someone the story of you watching them paint it and then them turning it around and it's actually this. But, right. but right. the painting itself... You want itself, it as a souvenir you know, of your experience right. yeah. more than as a thing to put under wall. Yeah. yeah, souvenir. That's a perfect word, yeah. And uh, yeah, and I get that with some of the other stuff like that, like the like when you see people doing street art, and it's fascinating to watch the process, and then you kind of left with this thing. It's like, oh, so I almost wonder. It's like, it, is it almost better to not see the process because now you can appreciate the after product because you don't necessarily get to see how amazing and engaging the the, art, the, the creative part of it is, and then you're left with the afterthought. Like all you have is that. So it's like, yeah, this is the. You know, that happened to me even. I was in a, I don't even, I don't remember who it was with, but I was in their house and there was stuff on their walls and I was looking at their pictures and whatnot. And they, you know, asked about one, asked about another. And we got to some other thing they had on their wall. He, he, he directed me over and he said, oh, yeah. And it was, I'd seen, it was like a sketch of some kind that I've seen a billion times in a billion places that is as, as, 
as common as the receipts you get at grocery stores. Mm -hmm. And I thought he'd probably stick it on his wall because he thought it looked nice, and which is great. You know, that's that's a perfectly valid reason. It's your wall. You live in it. It's going to enrich your life when you see it. Great. No, I'm not saying you shouldn't have. And then he explained it to me, and it was from a, a street sketcher somewhere. He'd been on vacation with his significant other, and the story was was beautiful. You know, it was a wonderful you know combination of once in a lifetime experiences and fond memories at the end of it i just thought that's like wow that's fantastic i'm sure this must make him really happy to have on his wall here but by god i didn't give a shit <laughs> and even knowing the story was sort of like that went from the thing that i barely noticed was on his wall at all mm -hmm. just just long enough to go oh yeah, yeah to go huh oh yeah the memory and then move on again anyway you know that it had value for him because he experienced it but yeah. not for me because yeah. I haven't mm -hmm. I feel like it's the same way you experience like the 80s horror movies yes right like it's the same <laughs> some, kind of them. Of some of them right yeah. except or I guess, shopping I guess mall. all of them that, except that, shopping that, mall. that even the ones I really end up loving I am never going to have that same personal connection right. to you know as, as someone from the era in the same way that if I were to show people from that era of the things that I watched growing up I mean that to me they are never going to have my personal connection right. you know it's, it goes both I, I ways. didn't mean that as a dig or anything no, no, I just, no it's, not at all I'd... it's nice to see consistency in your character <laughs> yeah, yeah. that you know having having that personally experienced something like that is you could say it adds to it but I'll just say it's a separate positive a different currency. A different, a different currency. Metric. Sure. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. yeah. you know, I, I still enjoy Alien and, and Robocop and, you know, Terminator and things that I was too young. I still love them. They're still great movies. I buy some of them. But they're never going to have that same experience such as, you know, like like The Last Samurai when I saw one of their film sets. I was on the Warner Brothers back lot and I saw one of their film sets. And even though I didn't see that film until some years later, I was too young for it at the time. It always has that connection for me now because I remember seeing that set in person, being there, standing in it. You know, and that's whether I enjoy the film as a film more because of that is hard to say. Right. It's just that I have this other separate thing that is a positive related to that. Mm -hmm. You know, the experience. Well, I feel like that's a similar thing too. Like when we talk about our favorites, and you know. The Matrix being my favorite film doesn't mean that I think it's the greatest movie ever created. Mm -hmm. It was the, the, the film that sort of spoke to me the most because of my experiences up until that point and what what I was sort of looking for and, or the things that I was feeling that either resonated with that or the, the ways that that took it to the next step. But yeah, I don't, you know, when we watch that together, I'm not going to expect you guys to quote-unquote get it and see that i was right that this right. is in fact the best movie right. it's but it's but yeah but it's like making Even that connection. Right, yeah. <laughs> but no but, but to make that connection and go oh, okay i see why tim likes this so much because right. now what i know about tim and how he thinks about things and this this and that and and where he is now i can imagine how you know this helped bridge the gap between where he was and how he got here and um, you know those types of things, mm -hmm. um, and and I think that's that's part of it. that's what I think art is supposed to do. Like it's not supposed to be like, um, you know I I, I I you know I don't know if we've talked about this before, but like thinking of it as a mirror, you know, mm -hmm. like there's a certain know. amount of it that has to be personal. Yeah, like like the artist sort of creates art 
not so that other people can see the artist in that thing, but so that they can see themselves, you know. And, and the artist will create the thing seeing him or herself in it. And that's what's going to produce. And, you know, just like a mirror, if you look at a mirror and it's like a funhouse mirror and you're trying to see yourself clearly, like, well, that's not a good mirror. You need to make it. And once he knows he can, he or she can see himself clearly or herself clearly, then the artist will know that other people will see themselves clearly because it's a good mirror. It is a good piece of art. And that's sort of, you know, the thing where I feel like, you know, there's a distinction between like, well, who are you creating this for? For you or for other people or for your audience for this, you know, and and where people get lost in, well, what's going to make more money? What's going to reach more people? I want to put people in the seats. I want to do this, right. you know, and and I think and it's, it's interesting, too, because remember when we, we got into the discussion about Pollock, you know, Scott, you mentioned we're not going to discuss what art is or isn't, you know. And then we proceed and, to yeah, do that. Yeah. Well, but, 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 you know, and that's the thing is it's not that, you know, we, we are the, the authority. But I think the reason that discussion comes up is because there are people who are creating something. And I won't say that it is or isn't art, but for reasons other than them kind of expressing what is inside themselves for other people to see and then you know, like like pop music, for example, pop music that's created by a, a bunch of you know ad execs who are like, this is what's popular, this is what will sell. Throw these pieces together, it'll make money. You know, and and not to say that that isn't music either. You know, I mean the 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 the, the singers or the musicians who are producing that music, they're still putting themselves into that to some degree. Uh, I mean, it's probably in a more of a box because the producers have kind of box them into what they're allowed to do but with what little room they have they're producing you know probably their best part of what they can do within those limitations so i'm not even making a comment that that stuff isn't art but i feel like if it's just a bunch of people who are freely creating what they they feel inside of them there wouldn't have to be a discussion well is that art or isn't it art except by people who don't understand what art is you know, like, you know, when my dad used to say rap isn't music because they're just talking. It's like that just because you don't understand this type <laughs> of music doesn't make it not music, you know, like mm-hmm. so that sort of thing where, you it's know, a fallacy of miscategorization. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, and just because all of the music that you've heard that came before this type of music was invented was different and had these different qualities and mm-hmm. th- that made it up. It doesn't mean that something that has a different set of qualities is automatically excluded from that category you know what's funny is it's the it's the it's the absolutism that makes that a problem because like if he said something along the lines of this isn't music it's art and it's got sound sound art but it isn't music that becomes a problem of definition and of perspective mm-hmm. of oh well okay you know you recognize the work that's going into it you recognize the purpose and the the feel but you think that music you know has a certain definition that that doesn't fit into and it's like, okay, that becomes a, okay, well, where does music end and sound art begin, you know, et cetera, yeah. as opposed to just no. Right. <laughs> that's, that's, that's too, no. Yeah. Like, well, even that, no. I wonder sometimes what, you know, I, I'll see people make that distinction. Like, for example, within film scoring, there's film scoring and then there's sound design, you know, and it's like, well, 
you know, to me, sound design is more like, oh, okay, they're outside. We need bird sounds and cricket sounds. Right. But mm-hmm. now sound design has become, we need some sort of synth drone to set the mood for this background. But it's not music because there's no melody. And, and I think a lot of times what it is more, more often than not is people, again, yeah, latching on to an idea of what they think that definition is, you know. Um, and that was one of the things I found ironic with the whole, you know, this isn't music because they're just talking. And it's just like, well, you know, like my dad was a drummer. That's what got me into drumming. And he loves when I would, was in percussion ensemble. So is music that's strictly unpitched percussion not music because there's no melody, there's no harmony, mm-hmm. and it's just rhythm and timbre? You know, it's like, no, of course that's still music, you know? So I think that's part of it too, is like we kind of latch, well, I have to be able to whistle this melody after I listen to the song once, and if I can't, then it's not music, you know? And, and like, you know, it, it's, it's, it's this ignorance of narrowing your perspective to what a thing is or what a thing, you know, has to be in order for it to be classified as that, you know? So why isn't... You know a synthesizer drone for three minutes under the scene why isn't that music you know like what 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 is it what is it not doing you know in terms of this using of sound in an artistic way you know why are why are we sort of excluding them from this category of music of high art you know where you're just doing sound design that's a different thing you know and i mean and i i can see the sense of it helping to clarify maybe what the director wants like here, I just want sound design. Okay, so you don't want this big orchestral gesture with all these ups and ups and downs and moods, you know. So in that case, I I understand where it helps to define what is expected. But um, I I mean I've I've heard plenty of things that are considered music that sound like sound design or are less complicated than sound design and still considered music. I'm thinking you know, of that is it Pink Floyd? track that's just like the sound of making breakfast or something oh maybe i don't know ah it's gonna bug me now if i don't look it up (laughs) (laughs) but um and that's interesting too this this kind of leads into one of the notes i made um and i think i touched upon this originally but when i made a few comparisons to pollock and composers of the time um so i think i mentioned john cage at the time but i also thought later i was like oh i forgot to mention henry cowell who is famous for being the first composer to play inside the piano to like mm. pluck the strings, tap the strings, you know, uh, run his fingernail along the, the sort of the wound strings and make this sort of like scraping sound. Um, you know, my two favorite composers, George Crum and Christoph Penderecki, where they, um, you know, they're using these, these uh, non-traditional ways of getting sounds out of instruments and making that a part of, you know, their tapestry of sound that they use. Um, so I think that's also a good example where it's like, oh, well, well, this isn't art, this isn't music. And it's like, well, you know, is it only music if you're bowing the strings and putting your fingers down to produce notes? Or what about if you're tapping on the side of the cello mm-hmm. and making notes that way or pressing so hard on the strings that you really only get the vaguest sense of a pitch and it's more of just this kind of growling sound, you know, right. is that not music all of a sudden because you're playing an instrument in a non-traditional way? The track I'm thinking of is Alan's Psychedelic Breakfast. It is Pink <laughs> Floyd. So. See, and that's making me think of uh, uh, Van Halen's <laughs> Pound Cake where Eddie's got a drill hooked up to his... He's playing string through the drill. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like, that... Just because you're not getting the sound out of the instrument in the traditional way. I mean, if we didn't have, if we thought about that with the guitar, there'd be no finger tapping. Van mm-hmm. Halen wouldn't exist as a concept. Like, the, mm-hmm. just the, 
Or even the electric guitar. Right. I mean, yeah. up until before electricity was invented, there were no electric instruments. Right. So now all of a sudden, oh, you have to plug this in to make sound. That's not that's not music. You're not supposed to do that. You can't project to the back of the hall yeah. without something plugged into a wall. Okay, yeah. Here's your um here's your description. The track features Pink Floyd playing in the background as Alan Styles speaks about the breakfast he is preparing and eating, as well as breakfast he's had in the past. There are significant breaks between the first and in between all three instrumental parts, where only Alan's muttering and movements with occasional exterior background noise are heard. Uh, skip one here. In addition to the talking, the sounds of Alan making breakfast, such as lighting the stove, cooking bacon, pouring milk and cereal, loudly gulping and drinking, and loudly and vigorously eating, are clearly audible in the background. Was this directed by Wes Anderson as he was doing a commentary <laughs> on the writing of Life Aquatic? Maybe that's what inspired him to do that. <laughs> It wouldn't surprise me if he was a Pink Floyd fan. <laughs> um, Sorry, we, no, we okay. went all the way away from what you were talking about. Uh, so, Paint. oh, so, so what? Yes, yeah, so one of the, the things. So I, I mentioned those components. They said, yeah. Um, so the thing with these components, they all needed to go beyond the traditional techniques and invent new ones to say what they needed to say. So, so basically, the, the language that had been established up to that point within the realm of you know the the sounds that were being made the pitches the timbres like they, it wasn't enough they needed to you know the previous vocabulary wasn't vast enough for all the things they had to say they needed new sounds they needed to you know um and i kind of equate that to like the new techniques you know it's like there's okay there's this brush stroke that makes this texture this brush stroke this, this but it's all it's all about the brush it's all about you know and he needed to go beyond that you know and i even like how there was that sense where he kind of uses his hands at one point mm -hmm. you know where it's like there still needed to be this thing making contact with the canvas at first. Mm -hmm. And then he kind of completely pulled away and it's just like, nope, it's paint to canvas, you know? Um, which is really cool too, because yeah, you kind of think about it. It's like, it's almost like he's trying to remove himself as much as possible. You know, he he's making no physical contact with the canvas by that point, you know? It's just sort of like he's, you know, he's letting the paint kind of do its thing in a way. Creating um, an opportunity for the artistic yeah. moment. Yeah. Um, but, so yes yeah, so that was my little thing I forgot to talk about I was like oh, I can't believe as a modern composer I forgot to mention all of the composers who you know like who kind of exemplify this type. And, there, and there are many more besides that but those are the ones that I really kind of that I really like and really kind of see as those touch tones of touch stones of, uh, of, of that evolution of how the art form is, is made you know um, are any of them present in the, the soundtrack to Polly? I don't think so. Is that um, where you're going to draw your inspiration for the theme for that one? No, I mean, I'm going to take the... Or the, the, have yeah. already done, right, since no. this is the yeah. uh, recap. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think I'm still going to take it from the... Well, and that's what's interesting, too, like watching... And, and this, I think this is interesting commentary about how art progresses. And what was it like? Uh, one of my teachers had said... There's never an artist who is ahead of his time. It's just that everyone else is behind the times. Like everyone else is behind where they should be in terms of what they're thinking and what they're understanding and what they're appreciating. So when some artist does something that's like, whoa, that blows my mind. It's just like, yeah, like, like get up here with, you know, it, it, the artist is leading the way saying, if this is happening now, if I'm doing this, this should be here. This is, you know, we, we shouldn't all be like 20 years from now. Go, oh yeah, that guy who did that thing. It's like, it's like, yeah, like it was being done. Why aren't you there? Get there, you know. Um, so, so you've got this artist from like the the '60s who's doing this thing, and all these other composers who are doing these these 
drastic, really, you know, groundbreaking things in like this, you know, 60s and maybe even before. I like to use the 60s as kind of that, because I feel like that's when a lot of that stuff was happening. But some of it was probably in the 50s and in the 70s as well. But I feel like it's a good average for when, um, when a lot of that was kind of like breaking out. And I think that's around the time too, like when electronic music first started to pioneer, you know, and a lot of that stuff was 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 being done because the technology was there you know um i think i'm bad with dates um but uh so anyway so then you get to this documentary that's made probably the late 20th century writing about the past and yeah you would almost think that the music that's used to to score that would be music that was being created at the time right but instead it's kind of this it almost got this kind of like quirky folk kind of thing to it. Right. And it's very, very pleasing to the ear, very sort of, it's, it's got its quirks, you know, like as I'm listening to it, I'm like, oh, cool. It's, you know, the, the, the overall rhythm has like seven beats, which is an odd number, which, you know, after listening to Rush for years, I'm very accustomed to, but, but your average person, you know, like it's, it's either three beats or four beats, anything else. It, again, it's not music. You know, if you're using these weird time signatures and rhythms and harmonies, that's not music, you know. So the, the, with the scoring, they kind of, I mean, and I love the music, but they kind of played it safe in a way. You know, mm-hmm. it's almost like, the, you know, why wasn't this scored with, you know, John Cage or Henry Cowell or George Crumb and kind of, um, you know, especially like, <clears throat> well, yeah, like uh, Cage, Cowell and Crumb, because I think, I think Cowell's also American, you know, sort of really showcase like, look, this is what Americans were really bringing to the table at this time. Gotcha. Um, you know, as opposed to kind of scoring it nowadays going, well, what are people going to want to listen to when they see a movie? And, and, yeah. I, and I get that whole thing, you know, but, but, but that's the thing is it's not even groundbreaking anymore at the time this film was made. It was like 30, 40, 50 years old, right. you know, and it's still people still aren't ready for that. Right. <laughs> you know, people now are still not completely ready for music that was being made 50 years ago. Like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> I'll pull out my notes again if there's a I was waiting to see if anyone else had anything they wanted to say so I'll... I was I was just thinking about like the score almost sounds like the same score as Tootsie like this, this <laughs> similar era just kind of like the atmospheric stuff because obviously there was like mm-hmm. pop music within that but it, yeah. it definitely was like movies of that time had a, a kind of when they were conveying emotion a certain way, it would the strings would hit that way. Like mm-hmm. the, the, the it was hitting all the the greatest hits notes of all those things in, in what yeah. I was listening to from it. And it, I don't know if that was just Ed Helms, not Ed Helms, Ed Harris. I did it a fucking again. I'm sorry, Ed Harris. You're both brilliant. I love Helms. I love Harris. This is Harris that we're talking about. I don't know if that was just a rookie director thing is like okay let's get music that'll evoke these themes and we'll craft mm-hmm. it that way yeah or if, if it was like okay we're still not ready for that music or how would it jive or those kinds of things i, I don't know how much in, interaction he had with the sound and i mean i mean one thing in defense of it too that that it, the way you could look at it is sort of another experimental quote-unquote experimental music of the time was was the composers who were known as minimalists and I feel like that was maybe definitely the vibe they were going with for this because it did has have aspects of minimalism. So instead being like, well, you know, if we're equating his music to to Philip Glass, where it's like, oh, look, here are these repeated patterns all, all over this whole canvas that kind of 
um, you know, you can kind of see this repetition and these very slight variations. So I could see if a parallel was drawn that way. Um, because it does have the you know the idea of this repetition and then how it will slowly evolve over time mm -hmm. you know and kind of create these layers on top well here's this bass layer with this little violin lick that's happening and then we're going to layer something else on top of that so so i mean that could have been the thing where it's like okay this is still a style of music that was being done around that time period but it's a little more you know the harmonies are a little more recognizable to people so we can kind of use that um but but yeah i, I feel like it didn't capture the uh, and maybe there wasn't as much of an uproar about that style of painting as there was about like with with those other more experimental composers, you know. Um, so so I don't know. There, yeah, there is that part of I, I I could see it being just it's kind of the best of both worlds, you know. We've got oh yeah, here's the style by these composers who were doing it at that time, but they're they're this side of things, not that side of things, and it's a way to reference that time but still play it safe and. Okay, I'll go back to my notes again. No, I, I was going to ask, do, is, there, is there a movie that incorporates those composers? Um, well, uh, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a kind of a loaded question. So um, there's a scene in The Exorcist where they use one of George Crumb's pieces. And I think I read a thing where at one point they asked him to score The Exorcist originally. Uh -huh. But he was like, no, film scoring is a completely different animal from what I'm doing. Like, right. but but they there was one scene that sort of embodies, you know, of, of a uh, so the the it's uh, this piece that he wrote called Black Angels, which is um, it's a string quartet, but the 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 strings are all are amplified, so he's able to have them produce these like ridiculously loud volumes, but at these really really soft volumes, you can still hear a lot of stuff you probably couldn't hear because of the amplification. Um, and there were just there were parts of it where it's just the the most I don't know how to describe it without using like music terms but some some of the most like harsh and dissonant and almost like aurally painful to listen to and I think I believe it's the scene when they look at her stomach and the letters help me show up on her stomach and you Spoilers. get like it's, yeah <laughs> You get this. This it almost sounds like like insects, and there's actually a part in the score where he refers to it as electric insects, and it's 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 a more subtle part in the music, but this is like this electric swarm of bees is kind of what's what's coming at you at this point, point. Um, and that's actually from one of his pre-existing pieces that he had written, not as film score, yeah. so it would be re referred to as source music in that sense, instead of taking pre-existing music and putting it in there. Um, um, I, I actually there's there's I think there's a few film scores Penderecki has done about your amplified you know amplified strings. Mm -hmm. So did he use electric cello? It, I mean, back in the day, I don't think electric cello no, was a thing. They, oh, I, oh, because of Wonder uh, Woman. Yeah, I'm sorry. He's, he's answering the question honestly was and earnestly. Just, but see, that's the thing. That's the difference. That is that the, the music that he's written. I, I have nothing against the electric cello as an instrument. Um, but no, like at, at that point, like electric cello wasn't a thing, so they're using like contact mics. No, I, um, I just, but I'm I feel sorry, like Tim, yeah. I was just poking fun. At <laughs> That's fine. I'm gonna edit in the Wonder Woman theme right here. <laughs> Do they use electric cello? <laughs> uh, 
If if Hans Zimmer is ever like looking for someone to join his team of composers and he hears our podcast, he'd be like, "Fuck that Tim Drury. He's never working in Hollywood if I have anything to say about it." Uh, or he's going to see, "I like that kid. He's not afraid Moxie. to speak his mind." Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I feel like Zimmer's closer to like a, a, a like he would listen to input. He's not like a Lucas who likes yes men around him. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It'd be interesting. I mean, from what I've gathered, like he—he—he's not that. He doesn't seem to be the type of composer who just sort of like, oh yeah, you need this. Okay, here you go. There's a theme for that. Like he seems to really labor right. over creating sounds. And um, I remember seeing a, a, a picture once of his studio, and he's just got all these like a wall of synthesizers and stuff like that. And um, I also saw like a part of a documentary that showed when he was like creating the uh like the theme for the joker in the dark knight mm. and like how he was like playing with these different things and you know having the cello like slowly do this really slow gliss that's like building this tension and you know how um and it was interesting to see how a big part of it was sort of the technology and how that i don't know if it was like different reverbs or whatever that he was using to kind of alter the sound and add this extra layer of tension and distortion to it but it was also like the player, like how specifically certain players and even certain instruments he was saying in another documentary I watched, like really play into the specific sound he's looking for, mm-hmm. for this character. And, you know, like it was this, this, this slow bend that he was having the cellist do. And he's like, no, 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 that's too fast. You got to go slower. You got to go slower. So it's almost like imperceptible how slowly the pitch is rising. So you're kind of aware of this offset and you're like, it's you know you can't hear the pitch going up, but you know that it's getting more and more unsettled and and you know that was so. But he really like experimented with the player and was really trying to get this this sound. And it's the most simple thing in the world. Like here's this one note, you're playing this note, and then you're slowly sliding up, and make it go more and more out of tune, and but but somehow that was like you know, but but there was there had to be this special nuance for it to work couldn't just be like yeah do do a slow glass up, up a half step you know essentially that that's the direction you know mm-hmm, in right. terms musical terms but you know it had to take a certain amount of time and you know maybe like you know a certain amount of vibrato from the cellist and like no that's too much vibrato here but that's not enough here and then you know um so it's, it was really cool to see how much care he put into that and, and and all the little details like you know in between the notes you know yeah to see that what that would technically look like notated on a piece of paper versus what he got out of the player, you know? So, so I do have a certain respect for that, like how much of a craftsman he is with, with certain sounds and everything. Um, and, and, you know, talking about him recording some of the, some of the stuff when, um, for, for the, the Dark Knight trilogy and, you know, how they had to record all, like all these like repeated rhythmic patterns with the orchestra and they had to be precisely in time because, you know, they had to fit with these other recordings of things and, and match up. And instead of using sort of samples out of the box where someone had created a loop, like he wanted the real orchestra to do it, but then he was kind of turning it into these loops almost that he could kind of use and manipulate. And, and it had to be perfect and precise, but it also had to feel like it was an actual person playing this. And so, so there are things about him, I think that, you know, to, 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 to learn from, you know, even though I don't love everything he's done, but um, yeah, that's one of the things I, I don't love. <laughs> but um. <laughs> more notes, Tim. Yes. So okay. So the other part. <laughs> so 
So here's the so one of the other big discussions we had was so the story of the the, the kid and his father looking at the art. Oh god. Oh yeah. So that which spun into a whole thing. So part of what I kind of realized Several I think whole things. I think yeah, I think mm. after the fact. So um so oh yeah, so number 1. So part of my idea of how to interpret what was meant cuz I know that was part of what we discussed, like what the father meant when he said Mm -hmm. I could have done that and part of what we the kid were, like, meant and talking about hypotheticals about hypotheticals right. <laughs> yeah pretty, so, pretty crazy so part of what I was sort of taking and again there could have been interpretation here um, uh, da, 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 da. So, so it was the tone of how my friend told it to me now granted already it's like third several <laughs> degrees yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean not several because you know he heard the father and then he told me right. but then me telling you guys I'm kind of maybe adding my own spin but the way you know, the way he kind of said it and presented it was, you know, when he said, you know, I could do that, it wasn't, oh, yes, this is what I wrote. So it wasn't, oh, I could do that. This has inspired me to pursue an interest <laughs> or skill that was previously thought to be out of the realm of my ability. <laughs> Instead, it was it was a dismissive tone. I could do that, you know. So again, like, like you can take those words and say, you know, cool, that inspired you to go home and make your own abstract painting, you know, and and cool great you were inspired by a piece of art you know it mm -hmm. was it was dismissive like the tone that that my friend used when he was telling me the story you know and and uh and again like i feel like stories like this it, it, you know maybe the uh, the the point isn't necessarily to go back and critique that individual right. but mm -hmm. that perspective of someone who looks at something and random dad it. from how many years ago in right. a place with a guy I've yeah. never met. Fuck, Fuck you! Guy, yeah. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> but um, <laughs> nice. so 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 in that sense of the the dismissive aspect of it is like you know so, and so that was the other part. Of it. Saying that you can do something doesn't give you the credibility to dismiss something that someone has actually done. You know, um, you know, I can walk around and I've I've seen people who do this. You know, they'll just kind of like look at stuff and be like, oh yeah, I could do that better. I could do this, and it's just like. But you don't like it's kind of like the Ethan Hawke character from Reality Bites. He just sits at home all day criticizing what other people are doing and like I'm smarter than you because you're out doing this stupid job and making money and doing things and you think you're so important, but I'm smarter than you and, he, and he's just sitting on his ass doing nothing. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? That I, character. I, I haven't seen that. You haven't as, seen Reality as, Bites? As no. This is why asses. we have this podcast. As we sit on our asses. Making a podcast critiquing films. <laughs> we are well, in reality bites. I don't normally critique. Well, I mean, <laughs> well, no, no, but, the, but, but, but no, isn't that the distinction? Unless the oh, distinction I, I try to make is that I'm not, uh, many times I'm not trying to say no, you're, this you're movie right. was made wrong. It should have been done this you're way. You're right. We, we talked about this before. About yeah. it's a question of language and perspective. That yeah. we're we're constantly trying to retrain ourselves to right. not say. God, that was shit. But instead, right. to say I didn't enjoy it, let's figure out why. Right. Yeah. You know, to to tastes. to to help myself grow to either understand mm -hmm. understand what I why I don't appreciate something, or to maybe learn to appreciate yeah. something. Not we're to not just not say this is it. shit. You know, knock it down. Yeah. This is shit. Forget about it. You know. We're, you know. We're not always good at it, but yeah. we're trying. Well, what well, you know, and I and I think sometimes we do do that where it's like, I feel like that has come up with certain things where it's like okay. Or at least, I guess, to try to evaluate that. To not have the, the, the arrogance to say, well, if I didn't like something, it's the thing's fault, right. not my fault. Mm -hmm. but, but when you kind of dig away at something, like, well, that's things do thing have is, flaws. And, and that's maybe the thing, that's that there's, there isn't necessarily yeah. fault to be had. Mm -hmm. just, just difference, you know? Yeah. It's not, 
oh, I didn't like this punch in the face. That's my fault. <laughs> it's the guy's fault. And it's not, you know, it's not something so clear cut. It's, you know, that guy wore a shirt and he probably looked at it in the mirror and said he liked it. Mm -hmm. I looked over at this guy and thought, duh, what a shirt. I yeah. would never wear that. He's such an idiot. You know, there's not his fault for wearing a dumb shirt or my fault for finding fault in his shirt. You know, it just, is, just doesn't appeal to different mindsets, different people. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that's, that's the thing I've tried to realize that I, and this was sort of, you know, the Hans Zimmer thing first made me realize this, is that I, I think we all have something to learn from everything. And I think that's the big problem with people who are dismissive about anything, you know, to just decide this thing sucks, it's not worth my time, you know, and, and not that you have to go out and experience everything so that you can try to find the value in it, but but, but, you know, when you, yeah, that, that arrogance of saying, like, no, I am better than this thing. This thing has nothing to offer me. I have nothing to learn from this. It is garbage. Whoever did it is a liar and a fraud. And, you know, completely, as opposed to, like, okay, well, what is it about this thing? Um, maybe I missed something. Let me try to get something from it. And at least, and if nothing else, you're learning the process of allowing yourself the possibility that you could learn something in a situation. Mm -hmm. You know, even if by the end of it you're like, "Yeah, I, I haven't learned anything more," but I took the time to consider the fact that maybe I had something to learn. <laughs> I feel like I, this. A lot of this is directed at my not having seen Justice League. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Not at all. I learned something from you just now, Tim. Tr no, truly. Yes, I know that, that sounds so cheesy. No, truly, that was that was a delightful speech. And having well, learned you. that very important life lesson, I clearly have nothing more to gain from you. Uh, thanks for being, <laughs> thank you for being on the podcast. Goodbye forever. Uh, no, but, uh, you sold that. We're finally so down well. to one person per <laughs> mic, just how you've always done. <laughs> no, but but I asked, and that was actually very instructive. That was beautifully said, Tim. And well it only done. took me forty years to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> Never too late. Never too late. So so then the last little tidbit I had with that whole thing. Is um, you know, and, and and I feel like a lot of times this is um, sometimes where I, I realize that I kind of clash with with the way people um, kind of perceive things, and and especially nowadays. And I, I I'm not again not saying this is a value thing. Like there is so much importance in trying to get to the the truth of a thing, uh, especially an event, you know, um, and in terms of what really happened. Um, but a lot of the way. I kind of see things and maybe this is because I'm like slightly delusional and the way I approach reality is is as um, you know as 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 fiction as you know it, it so so and that's part of why like metaphor is 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 something that I really hold on to because metaphor exists sort of out, outside of truth it's all about interpretation um, and that's what I love about it. And that's what I love about being an artist and creating art and viewing art and sharing art and all this other stuff is that it, like truth doesn't matter. And I mean, there is truth. It's there. You know, there there is historical fact about how a work of art was created, what day it was created, blah, 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 blah. But I don't need to know all that. You know, you can look at something, listen to something and draw what you what you want from it. Um, so for me, looking at this story and what the father did or didn't mean and what the inflection originally was, all that. Uh, one of the things I took from it um, is the, da, 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 da. oh yeah, that I was glad that the, the child didn't allow his father's comment to inform his perspective of what art is or isn't. So aside from what the father meant, like he, you know, and, and again, I guess this is also 
assuming that there's a negative connotation and that's sort of why the kid clapped back and said, yeah, dad, but you didn't. So, you know, I feel like there are many parent-child relationships where if the father had said like, oh, I could do that, this is going to plant the seed in the kid's mind that like, oh, okay, well, if my father's dismissing this, then this isn't art and, you know, and okay, I shouldn't look at this as anything good or anything that's like this isn't good. And, you know, my father's older than me, so he knows better than me about all things. So if, if you know, if, if he has an opinion about something, I should really follow what his opinion is about this. And this is an art and I can ignore it. But instead, like, yeah, like he, he, he didn't, you know, keep quiet or accept that his father, oh yeah, he, and accepting that his father must automatically be as good of a painter slash artist as Jackson Pollock. The child was able to make a distinction between the work in front of them and and something his father said you know like this is a thing that was actually created versus you know some passing judgment comment your father's making like maybe if if the father was an artist you know and again like we don't know that maybe the father was an artist and he was one of these hyper real artists and you know he spends all this time crafting these photorealistic pictures and you know it's like wow i can't tell that's a painting it looks like a photograph it's amazing and you know to him that's a, a, this distinction of like oh god you know, this is like what my drop cloth looks like after I'm painting, which has been, you know, one of the criticisms of Jackson Pollock, you know. Um, but I mean, the fact that the kid sort of stood up to his father, you know, right. and and not that I expected that to change the father's mind about it and say, oh, you know, you're right. Maybe I should reconsider the way I judge art. But the fact that the father didn't get to have his opinion perpetuated you know, by his into his son and by his son, so that now this kid is going to grow up and say the same shitty thing to his kid someday right. when they're looking at a piece of art. You know, and you know that the, the kid had his own and and so it, it, that what I loved about that is more the sense of hope that the child gave me that oh good there are kids out there who aren't letting the parents completely inform their opinions about everything. You know that that it's like no I I, I you know. I'm not just going to take everything you say because I said so, you know, that, that like, you know, no, like what, you don't get to just write something off to me, you know, and be like, okay, this is, we're only going to look at paintings that look like other things or whatever, you know? Um, so yeah, so those are the thoughts I had later. <sighs> we got a lot of Tim this episode. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. It was very backloaded though. I'm glad we did. No, no I'm glad. It's, Yes, yeah. indeed. Chuck full of Tim. Fistful <laughs> of Tim. Tim has now done his, his stuffing and his cramming and his plopping. Yep. His plop. He's in everything now. <laughs> All over. And the, the cracks in your table. Yeah. Can you can you feel the Tim in your head? Can you feel me inside you? <laughs> in your ears, in your head. In your heart. Perfect, Joel. <laughs> perfectly timed, perfectly spoken. Uh, well, so in the interest of time, should we do situational movie recommendation? Yeah, let's do it. I have one. Go. Okay. Do you have one, Tim? I have nothing. I got nothing. <laughs> no, never. Dismissively. Of course not. Sure. I forget yeah. that we do this every time. <laughs> That's the one. <laughs> All right, go for it, Joel. All right. Um, if you were to have a child... No, Shit. pass. No, five. I'm sorry. What is the movie that you show them? You said at, at, at age five. Age five. five. <laughs> Presumably, this will be the first movie they remember. Okay. Okay. So that roughly that development yeah. range. 
whatever it happens to be. Um, and it could be informed by what was so the first one you remember, or those kinds uh, of things. Have I been showing them the typical animated kid stuff? Like this in, is I'm I'm this is thinking in the, the realm of standout? animated. Okay. I'm okay. Like, yeah, it's gonna be the yeah. first. I thought it would be a good one for a story, like what's your connection to that? And mm. presumably, you got to remember it's going to be something that's going to be like on repeat for because mm-hmm. kids love repetition, and it's like, oh, let's watch it again. Or at least I was. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's just me. Yeah. Am I the only one? No, not at all. No. Okay. Could have really twisted my worldview there. <laughs> we had one VHS tape, and that was it. <laughs> See, I remember that type of thing more with my youngest sister. There were like certain things she latched onto. Um, if she ever listens to this, she's gonna laugh. But one of them was uh, Richard Simmons sweating to the oldies. <laughs> she would just watch that yes. fucking wait, thing. Yes, that's wait, amazing. Really? Yes, yes, oh, yes. My God. And worn the copy out. Oh God, it was just like, why, why this? Sweating to the oldies. <laughs> and like sometimes, like she would kind of do some of the motions, but most of the time she would just watch it. And I was just like, oh my God, it was just on all the time. Well, Richard was kind of like a cartoon character. He was like brewing, like overflowing with positivity and like and yeah and yeah I mean yeah there's there's worse stuff to watch but it was just kind of like <laughs> why this <sighs> hmm. alright I I would have to decide between I, I, given my my cursory mental search I've done in the past few minutes here between and maybe maybe I'm being a little little premature maybe I should wait a little for these but uh, Big Hero Six and Inside Out. No, okay. mm. because they were so. As an adult, they were so revolutionary to me. Inside Out being just dealing with emotions and how to deal with them and healthily, and you know, to talk to people and feel. And it does it does this discussion of that sort of thing that was so, not just contrary to the typical, especially as a boy growing up to the. You know, boys don't. We're we're tough and don't talk to people about our emotions right. or our problems, and we solve. We're independent and solve things for right. ourselves. And so, contrary to that, and in terms of just no, you know, be take what you need, be healthy, be you know, and I think that would serve well as a film for them to watch and enjoy, and then to come back to out of nostalgia when they're older, and then find new things in it. Gotcha. Does that make sense? Yeah. And same for Big Hero Six, but in terms of especially of grieving and loss and Big Hero 6 is certainly it's, it's a family member you know it's a brother who dies but it helps in terms of just the overall concept as things change and, and you move on you know like you can't just move on to the next thing and forget what happened but you can't dwell on it and wallow either they both would serve similar purposes I would hope to be entertaining and you know to help to help shape a healthy worldview. Yeah, and it'd be something that they could come back to and it would not have suffered from no, aging or from mm-hmm. yeah that's that's actually kind of reshaping the ones I'm thinking about <laughs> maybe that makes me too controlling of a parent too much directed <laughs> growth of you know no you will learn good emotions by age 6 and then you will do this by age <laughs> by age 10 you will understand politics <laughs> and by age 15 you will understand this <laughs> You are not getting older, you are getting better! (laughs) (laughs) Alright, listeners, if you have not seen Germans say nice things from the Dana Carvey show, you need to stop right now and YouTube that shit right now. We'll wait. It's Steve Carell and... 
Dana Carvey. Oh, just Dana Carvey. Yeah. That's who's. Done. It's it's yeah. brilliant. We'll wait. So yeah, there's our there's our second pause, <laughs> yeah. and there will be our little edit. And hey, we're back. All right. Uh, thanks. Good. Glad you watched that. Great to catch up. So uh, you two still need situational recommendations for your child's first memorable movie. Mm. Do you want to go first? Do you have one in mind, or are you still rethinking? And well, so as I, as uh, Scott was talking, I was thinking Zootopia would be a great one to start Ooh. with. Really entertaining, oh, fun adventure, <laughs> a very pointed. It's not very subtle the commentary that it's making about class and, and thinking race and, and race types and of people mm-hmm. and working together. Yeah, and, and prejudice. Like and yeah. it's mm-hmm. really entertaining, really fun, and it's also pointed. And it, it, I think it's a good. It's never too early to start breaking those kinds of conditionings. Yeah, and that that would be. Yeah, the, you talking about Inside Out and. Big Hero Six made me think of that one, but my my initial thought was um, Lion King. Mm. Just I I watched the hell out of it as a kid. Mm. It's basically Hamlet. The songs are great. It's something that's entertaining and yeah. you can watch oh, yeah. over for fun. And oh over. yeah, I mean, <laughs> right. And it, it deals with kind of uh, wishing for things that are you don't really understand the connotations of. Having your father die, and then being manipulated, and then trying to escape from your problems and just have fun, and then responsibility kind of taking over and reclaiming and kind of, it's a good kind of redemption story. It kind of talks about different aspects, and it's I mean it's entertaining as hell. It's a movie that I've watched a hundred times and probably will watch a hundred times more. That's that's those would be the two. I would want to show them Aladdin, but I, I know they wouldn't like it as much as I do. So <laughs> I love Aladdin, <laughs> right? <laughs> so Tim, what are you going to use to show your child the world? <laughs> it's tough. I've, I've, I've got a few in mind. Um, I keep kind of. I, I got pulled in a few different directions. Um, one of the things I was thinking was, um, well, my first thought, which isn't a movie. I was thinking uh, Avatar: The Last Airbender. Yeah, because I feel like that it has, and maybe like start with okay, we're just gonna watch season one for the first few years, and then as kind of the, <laughs> the show mature, they mature like have the show mature with them, you know. Because um, especially at the beginning, I remember showing it to my cousin's daughters, and I feel like there's a lot of like kid kind of fart joke kind of stuff in like the first, and I remember they like I'd gone over there another time, and they had watched episode one a bunch of times, and that was it. You know they hadn't yeah. sort of moved on, but but that but that one episode was entertaining enough for them to kind of watch a few other Did times. You go penguin sledding with me? <laughs> yeah, probably yeah, stuff like that where it was just like yeah, it's this funny silly thing, and um, but maybe that would be part of it. You know, you start with episode one, and then when they're kind of sick of it, oh, I want to watch that one again. You know, like you were saying the repetition, but then well, there's more to this story. Let's move to episode two, maybe. You know, um, I mean, I definitely would want to show my kids that series at some point. You know, but. Yeah, maybe, maybe that would be, um, maybe the beginning of that is young enough for them. Um, one of the other things I was thinking is um, the Fantasia movies. Mm. Um, so I feel like that's also a cool thing. You know, it, it, you're introducing them to some of the the pillars of classical music, plus you know cartoons, but there isn't much specific narrative in some of them. Like some of them are a little more, you know, there's a story there. Um, that first one gave me nightmares. 
<laughs> the the brooms. Oh yeah, the, the, the sorcerer apprentice. Yeah. Holy, it's still. <laughs> I I I've only watched it like twice. The mm-hmm. first time it terrified me and gave me nightmares. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so that just beware spawn of Gerard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, but yeah, but so so I think that would sort of be you know, and, and maybe that's part of it. You know, pick and choose which ones I should. Right, like not, there's different vignettes yeah. and stuff that you. Show. Um, yeah, because there's one with like the alligators and the hippos. Like that one's kind of funny and silly, and they're doing the ballet dancing and um, <clears throat> the the one in Fantasia two thousand where they do Beethoven's Fifth and they have like the little triangle butterflies, you know, and so it's like kind of abstract, but kind of, you know, you can kind of. You know, again, I say butterflies because it's just two triangles moving around, but they're moving the way butterfly wings work, you know, mm-hmm. and that type of thing. Um, so there's nothing, you know, and the music gets kind of scary at some points, but I almost wonder, like, you know, if, that, if that's kind of cool to see if they can kind of latch on to that, that, that shift in mood and things like that. Um, but yeah, so maybe it would be a pick and choose kind of thing, but I feel like that would be a good way to, here's this cartoon, but you're also getting kind of culture along with it and, um, Maybe culture isn't the right word, or the the, the past. You know, um, one of the things I was thinking, and and I need to watch more of the the current Disney films. I haven't seen a lot of them just for one reason or another. Mm-hmm. I'm not against them. It's just a lot of times I think I never saw them enough time. Always, yeah, yeah, you there's know. so much out there right and, now. And and or, and like like uh, Inside Out, I've wanted to see for a while, but it's like not on Netflix. And it's pro- want to borrow it? Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah that'd be great. Fantastic. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Maybe some um, Krista would want to watch. Yeah, too, well, she's wanted to watch yeah. it too, but you, it's, mm-hmm. it's like I don't, I don't want to buy this. I don't know if I'm going to like it, you know. Right. And uh, so anyway, you're going to like it. Yeah. It's... So 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 probably you know after watching it, maybe I would also choose Inside Out as well. Like, but you know, but but that idea of like this is made for kids and also adults. Right. So yeah, knowing that as a an adult, oh yes, I enjoy this film and my kids will like it because it's a cartoon, but it can grow up with them and they will learn more as mm-hmm. they grow. Um, the the one we've seen recently is Moana, which I love. Wow, yeah. Um, mm. So that would be, especially you know if I had a girl, you know, to be like, look, here's this girl, and she's gonna be the, the you know the leader of this tribe, and that's just that's what it is, you know. Like it's not this father passing it to his son; it's like his daughter, and she's the one who goes out and becomes a badass and does all this stuff. And um, so you know, it's one of those type of things. I was also thinking. I don't know if this one is too scary, but uh, Kubo and the Two Strings. I don't know if you guys saw that on Netflix. It's really good. That's what I've heard. But it's like there, there's some times that are kind of like like it starts off with like oh yeah, and the grandfather stole his eye, and like the kid he has one mm. eye through the whole thing. It's just like oh okay, like maybe if they're five they won't really catch that. You know maybe start the movie after that part so they never really hear that or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then like when he confronts his grandfather, it's it's pretty scary too. But um, so yeah, maybe I would have to wait on that one. But um, that's the thing. Like you always, it's interesting the things that traumatize kids that you wouldn't. Think. Like I watched yeah. Jurassic Park when I was like seven, mm-hmm. and would never thought of that movie as scary. Mm-hmm. Just watched it over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. But like Fantasia terrified me. Right. Yeah. The the wishbone <clears throat> episode of Frankenstein gave me nightmares. Mm-hmm. Like these just weird little pockets of the things that just it hits you in different ways so i it's uh... sorry when you said wishbone or my this is a, a quick aside so i had gone to this uh there was this talk where there were a bunch of film composers this was in denver and um the the guy who composed the theme song for wishbone was there you know so to kind of get like this working composer that we would recognize yeah. and he was telling us the story of like you know he had a, a grandson and he was like 
he's like, yeah, you know, like your grandfather, you know, he wrote the song to this, you know, and, and he played it for him. And he's like, oh, what'd you think? And his grandson said, I like the way the dog pooped out your name. <laughs> and the part where the composer's name, like Wishbone's walking across the street and the le- uh, across the screen and the letters are appearing as Wishbone is walking by. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. The one thing that would make you like a rock star to yeah. that kid, and it's... <laughs> the dog poops out your name. <laughs> that's amazing. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, and that's, I guess that's sort of the, the common thread is that sort of, the, yeah, the Disney kind of animated thing where it's like, I, I mean, as long as I can remember, you know, I think they, they've all been built with those, okay, it's cartoon characters and kids will love it. But adults watching this, it's like, oh look, I'm catching all these things that no, that the little kids aren't catching, and, and those are always the best ones, like yeah. Toy Stories, like <clears throat> that. Mm. I mean, yeah, Finding Nemo's like that. Like those would be good ones too. Yeah. I don't know if I showed my kid that young Toy Story because I feel like a, a big part of that is kind of the growing up and letting go of those things. Right. And be like, you're only five. You don't have to worry about letting go of your toys yet. <laughs> Plus, I, I wouldn't want him to think his toys came to life. And be scared of that, right? That or, Sid or, sequence is oh uh, yeah, scary. that that part like, too. Yeah, those toys are with the the spider wicked. doll head. Yeah, and then the Marie Antoinette and her little sister. That little uh, oh, uh, yeah. beheaded joke is is great, mm-hmm. but like, yeah, terrifying. Mm-hmm. The legs with the uh, fishing line. Yeah, for a head. Mm-hmm. I, maybe that's why I'm so messed up and surrealist. Is like <laughs> that stuff was really cool to me <laughs> or if, if, if my if I had a kid and he or she was anything like me they would want their toys to come to life and be incredibly disappointed when they didn't there, so every so often <laughs> they put up on Facebook it's these uh, uh, parents uh, they're just parents of these two kids and they have their like dinosaur toys oh yeah and they're like Mm -hmm. one night a year they come to life and then they put them in different places Mm -hmm. like those are gonna be some messed up kids but every time I see like that's really cool I would totally do that they're gonna hate their parents when they find out that isn't real right (laughs) (laughs) I used to try to catch my toys like I would leave the room and close the door and then think I was leaving I'm like oh they're right where I left them good good work (laughs) gentlemen good work (laughs) you were saying like uh, um, doing Avatar for like a series mm-hmm. or something. I was thinking, I want to show them Looney Tunes. Um, but there's one specific yeah, one, and it's it probably, like, What's Opera Doc would be the... Oh, like, man, L- L- what an episode. Right, like, that That gives it kind of the culture thing, but it's also Bugs Bunny and drag and this kind of silly, silly thing. And then when he does the uh, Barber of Seville, too, like, that Everything sequence is great. Those. And then there's the one that's the, really... The, all of them, though. Awkward. Like Orange Sylvester and Tweety, yeah. Tom, Tom and Jerry. Uh, oh man! I, I, unfortunately, little does he know, I am wearing my disintegration proof vest. Yeah, uh, Marvin just Marvin poof, and, and then yeah. the vest is still there. Just, <laughs> yeah. Everything about those is so simple. It's just beautiful. Right. It works. Just works. The one I'd want to show Keep him is the simple, one where it, it it's Daffy is going through this, and the the artist keeps messing with him. Oh, yeah. He keeps drawing it, and at the end, you find out it's bugs. Mm-hmm. It's it's like so meta and so multi-dimensional and so twisted and messed up. Like that's yeah. that's uh, my kids are gonna be fucked. Animaniacs. <laughs> yeah, and, and Freakazoid. They're gonna watch Freakazoid. You don't even know. Again, Google Freakazoid if you don't know what the hell that is. 
I remember watching that growing up and then finally seeing the Warner Brothers Water Tower in real life and being disappointed that it that was it smaller than I thought and obviously not home to any creatures like Animaniacs. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh. I like how you said any creatures like Animaniacs. Like, if not them, then, you know, at least if there were some yeah. fucking squirrels in there or something. Nothing. <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like it's been a while small. since the show come out. Maybe it's their descendants. Like, yeah. something. something. Give us man. something. <laughs> That was quite quite a discussion. The whole sequence. We just we started a little slow, you yeah. know. We jumped from topic to topic, but we really picked up as time went on. Yeah, that's a good <sighs> we've covered a lot. Yeah, that was a good recap. It felt good. It felt mm-hmm. refreshing. The same, yeah. the same yeah. films, the same topics. Not rehashing anything. <clears throat> right. Yeah. Not much anyway. I'd like to mm-hmm. to thank our listener for sticking <laughs> it out for this whole. No. <laughs> <laughs> We do appreciate everybody. Uh, there, there's some random guy named Noah just going, Oh my Noah God, me. that's me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <but laughs> no. So, uh, next episode. Yeah, which um, we mentioned in the last one. Yep. Would have but been, this if is you the beginning those. of our guilty pleasure cycle. Yes, yes. sir. <laughs> so, we will be watching Gods of Egypt. I'm Hold delighted. on to your fucking hats, ladies and gentlemen. I'm delighted. <laughs> it's. I do not apologize for this film. I love it immensely. I cannot wait. I was thinking most of these are probably less guilt than pleasure. Yeah, no, they're they're shameless. Yeah, it's shameless. No, that's a good way to say it. It's the shameless shameless pleasure cycle. Yeah, Yeah. that's that's definitely a better way to describe mine. Because yeah, like I don't. Yeah, you defend. Say what you want. I don't care. You know, (laughs) I'm gonna watch this and love it. Yeah. If you bring a prequel, so help me God, no, Scott. You know, you know what I'm bringing. It's all good. It's fine. Well, that's what I love. I feel like at least, I mean, maybe, I don't know about for mine, but but I feel like we're pretty excited for each person's pick. Yeah, yeah no. It's not like, oh, sure. God, I'm going to have to watch this garbage thing that this guy, it's, it's like, yeah, yeah, Gods of Egypt. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, excited. You know, and, yeah, I saw this in theaters. Ah, well, no, let's, let's. I can't yeah. wait to, to talk I, I actually have stopped myself from going to watch it in because prep- I want to watch it again <laughs> with you guys and I don't want it to have been too soon but it's it's spectacular well we are certainly looking forward to it Joel yeah. I'm sure our listeners are too <laughs> if, if not the film then they're probably looking forward to our discussions yeah if you, if you don't end up seeing it before <laughs> listening listen and then go see it because it's, it's going to be <laughs> so uh, that will be that'll be fantastic. It will be the beginning of our fourth cycle of Woo. films. It'll be episode ten. Yeah. Woo. Woo. And uh, <laughs> uh, we've come so far. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. We hope to keep doing it for a long time. We hope you all keep enjoying it, listeners. We hope you'll keep joining us. Uh, until then, have a good night. Bye. Bye. Hey, listeners. We appreciate you tuning in for our podcast. We're now available on iTunes. If you'd like to check us out there, I'd be glad to have you subscribe. We'd also love to hear your feedback, whether it's a comment, review, or anything else. You can reach us all through our official Nerds That Geek emails, which you can find on the bio page at nerdsthatgeek.com. Or, if you can find us on social media, I'm on Instagram at scott underscore w underscore murray. And then on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at joelt18. And on Instagram, I'm the Tim Gerard, And on Twitter, I'm at Tim Gerard. Thanks so much for tuning in. We hope you'll come back for more. Thank you.